fuck this model And she just bleached her asshole And I get bleach on my t-shirt I'ma feel like an asshole I was high when I met her We was down to try back up She get under your skin if you need her She get under your skin if you need her I don't even wanna talk about it I don't even wanna talk about it I don't even wanna say nothing Everybody gon' say something I'll be worried if they say Johnson, also known as Brian. Been away for a little while, been working on another podcast, going to record another episode of that podcast later today. Uh, it's been taking care of uh, 
things around here, some administrative issues and making everything better behind the scenes. Um, hope you can hear my dishwasher because that's totally running right now and I record this about 10 feet from my kitchen, so. Gonna jump around a lot today. Uh, I'm gonna try to catch up to some old stories and cover some new stories, nothing big. Um, just some local stuff for today. Uh, and then I'm gonna open a book, since I promised I would. Hmm. Could start with the 50 states. Hmm, nope, that's all incredibly depressing. So instead of 50 states, Let's go right to the meat of the local story that I was going to bring. We'll go back to the 50 states uh, in a little bit here. Maybe we'll look at the snapshots. Um, so this is in a local paper. This is in the news press, uh, Sunday, March 20th, 2022. Um, today, by the way, is Wednesday the 23rd, uh, 2022. It's 2.43 p.m. Um, and this is episode 19 of the podcast for all time. Should have said that at the start. This is by Clayton Park. In the, uh, I guess it was originally written for the Daytona Beach News Journal, for the USA Today Network. The Amazon effect, e-commerce's giant, oh, excuse me, e-commerce giant's rapid expansion shifting Florida business landscape. But I would say that uh, with the apostrophe in a different location, still would have said basically the same thing. When Amazon opened its 1.4 million square foot fulfillment center along Interstate 4 in Deltona in September 2020, Many figured it would be the e-commerce giant's final project in Volusia County. After all, it's just 12 months earlier that the Seattle-based company had opened its first logistics facility in northeast Florida County, a 66,000-square-foot last-mile delivery station along Interstate 95 in Daytona Beach. And by the way, last-mile is uh, delivery after your most local distribution center, essentially. This past December, a construction crew began clearing land for a 2.8 million square foot robotics fulfillment center codenamed Project Tarpon, just south of the fabled Daytona International Speedway. The site work began shortly after the mystery company was revealed to be Amazon at a Daytona Beach City Commission meeting. Quote, I think everybody was surprised, said commercial realtor Dick McNerney of Adams, Cameron, and Co. Realtors in Daytona Beach. In my 45 years in the business, I've never seen a company gobble up this much industrial land this fast. And I may add that although this is happening in, uh, let's see, the Tampa area, it's happening everywhere throughout Florida. And specifically, and I think the reason why my local paper is covering this in this scenario, besides, I mean, it is happening all over the state, is that it's happening here, specifically in the southwest Florida region. Now, if I remember correctly, doing my research, I may have read on the show, back at the very beginning, something about Amazon or a company... A company that would be essentially a cover, not a cover, I mean, is a weird way to say it, but it's essentially a, a front company making the purchases and acquisitions and doing the research and stuff like that so as to not alert the local real estate community of the incoming influx and market wave that would be knowing that an Amazon facility is going to be nearby and, you know, affecting the price and cost of uh, inter, uh, industrial properties around uh, but I've heard that here in Southwest Florida, I believe it was in north of Pine Island in Cape Coral, and then there was another one maybe in Estero. I know that, like, uh, they're popping up. Anyway, quote, I think everybody was surprised, said the commercial realtor Dick McNerney and of Adams, Cameron, and co. realtors in Daytona Beach. Quote, in my 45 years in the business, I've never seen a company gobble up this much industrial land this fast. Across Florida, Amazon is sparking similar stories. 
Uh, we're going to go to 6A. Alright, of rapid growth. Great continuation. Putting its pedal to the metal in Florida. The company growing its national distribution network at an astonishing speed, but perhaps nowhere faster than Florida. Amazon had 29 logistics facilities, including locations used only as part of use only part of the year. Interesting. In the Sunshine State prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020. Since then, the company has opened 56 more. Wow. So since the start of the pandemic, they have opened 56 facilities. And they only had 29 before. So they've tripled, over tripled, well, close to tripled their number of locations. Incredible. Since then, the company has opened 56 more, according to a statewide survey conducted by USA Today Network Fuller Reporters. Those new facilities have added an estimated 16.1 million square feet of distribution and warehouse space to the 14.1 million square feet in the online retailer. Uh, the online retailer occupied in the state before 2020. The facilities include first mile fulfillment centers, including um, also middle mile sorting centers and smaller last mile delivery stations. Amazon's 30.2 million square feet of distribution and warehouse space in the Sunshine State equals more than 161 Walmart supercenters. Which I know we have more than those, but that shows you square footage just being snapped up at an incredible rate. Most of the colossal new centers hug the coast or line the I-4 corridor, but now the company is moving to less populated areas where it can find more industrial space at lower costs. Amazon is believed to have two dozen more projects either under construction or planned in Florida, according to the USA Today Network, Florida Estimates. Those estimates are based on news reports, interviews with local government officials and industry observers and announcements by Amazon or developers working on the company's behalf. Amazon's growth in Florida has created 59,000 jobs and injected billions of dollars into the state economy. It is shortening delivery times to customers, with many orders now placed on doorsteps of homes within one or two days. It is also increasing the company's ability to roll out new services, including Amazon Fresh, grocery stores. But the company's expansion is also creating more traffic congestion on Florida roads, where Amazon trucks, as well as its smiling blue prime delivery vans, have become an increasingly common sight. And it is creating greater challenges for traditional brick-and-mortar retailers, including mom-and-pop shops, in terms of competing for consumers' dollars, as well as hiring and retaining workers. Amazon offers a minimum starting pay of $15 an hour, as well as medical, dental, and vision benefits that are uh, that commence on employees' first day on the job. Some small businesses have a hard time matching that. Some don't, but I digress. And then the full impacts of, Flor of Amazon's expansion in Florida have yet to be known because of how rapidly it is taking place. Owen Torres, a spokesman for Amazon, wrote in an email that the company operates 88 locations in Florida, including 32 Whole Foods market stores, two Amazon four-star stores, and one Amazon pharmacy. Amazon also operates 13 fulfillment and sorting centers, 34 delivery centers, one air gateway, one regional air hub, one Amazon hub locker, and one Amazon fresh fulfillment center. Torres declined to state how many more locations Amazon intends to add in Florida, although you can guess it is uh, multiple times the number that currently exists going on to infinity. Torres confirmed when the company does announce projects, it is typically it only gives out the square footage of the ground floor or footprint as opposed to total size. That makes it even more difficult to gauge the size of the company's operations. Some of its facilities have multiple floors. According to the USA Today Network, Florida Estimates, uh, USA Today Network, Florida Estimates, uh, Florida Estimates, Amazon's proposed projects, if all built, 
could add more than 16.7 million square feet of distribution in warehouse space for the company in Florida over the next two years. The completed projects would increase the size of operations in the state by 55% from the beginning of this year and 232% from the start of the pandemic. Incredible. Over triple. Nationally, Amazon is on track to expand its network of distribution centers and delivery stations by 40% over the next two years, according to Mark Wolfrat, a Montreal-based global supply chain consultant. His firm is called MWPVL International Inc. Wolfrat does not do work for Amazon, but has been meticulously compiling a database of the company's known facilities and projects throughout the world. By Wolfrat's count, Amazon has 79 existing facilities in Florida and 32 projects either under construction or in the planning and proposal stage. Some of the projects on his list have already opened, according to the new news reports. USA Today's network's research accounted, uh, counted 24 Amazon projects in Florida as of February. Why the explosive growth? Quote, Florida has 21.5 million people, 6.4% of the U.S. population, so several hundred million orders per year need to be served in the state. By Amazon alone, said Wolfrat. The build-out taking place in Florida for fulfillment space is directly correlated to the high demand for online shopping in the state. Could be because it's 4,000 degrees and everybody hates each other. But that's just me. Fulfillment centers are the cash registers of the business, he added. Why the hurry to expand? To understand what's driving Amazon's expansion in Florida, check out its revenues since the start of the pandemic. According to the company's earnings report for the first quarter 2020, revenues jumped 26% year-over-year to $75.5 billion as more consumers turned to Amazon to provide essential goods while sheltering in their homes during the early months of of the COVID-19 crisis. Amazon ended 2020 with $386 billion in annual revenues, up 37.6% from the previous year. Revenues in 2021 rose an additional 21.7% to $469.8 billion. The surge in online orders for Amazon in early 2020 resulted in uncharacteristically lengthy delays in deliveries to customers with some orders taking weeks to fulfill, according to news reports. Those delays were caused in part by the company's adoption of COVID-19 safety protocols for its workers. A November 27, 2020 report by the Washington Post, the daily newspaper owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, was unsparing in its criticism of the online retailer's performance during the first few months of the COVID crisis. Quote, when the pandemic started, there were few e-commerce companies that seemed less prepared than Amazon, the Washington Post article stated. Quote, the clogged network and the new hurdles caused by the pandemic led Amazon to throw gobs of money at the challenge. It sped up spending how it, uh, it sped up spending it had planned for 2021 on acquiring new warehouse space to supplement a logistics network straining under the weight of pandemic-fueled shopping, end quote. After opening seven new facilities in Florida in 2019, Amazon opened 23 in 2020 and 33 more last year. World's Biggest Package Delivery Company David Glick, a former Amazon logistics executive who now serves as chief technology officer for a Seattle-area company called Flex, told the Washington Post that the e-commerce giant's goal in in rapidly expanding its logistics network is, quote, building the world's biggest package delivery company, end quote. Wolfrat thinks Amazon could very well do it. Amazon is seeking to expand its domestic and international logistics capabilities to ensure speed, quality, and control over the delivery function. He told USA Today Network, reporter in an email. By expanding its network of air hubs, 
Sortation centers and delivery stations, the company is less reliant on national carriers like the U.S. Postal Service and UPS. Only Amazon knows how far they will go with this program of internalizing their own transportation to reduce their reliance on others. I personally believe that the company will not stop until they have every zip code serviced by Amazon Logistics, end quote. And I think they're probably correct. Amazon wants to operate, quote, under their own schedule and not under the schedule of another supplier said Wolfrat. They want consistent, reliable quality, service, and package tracking capability using a single uniform system. Uh, which would explain why they own such a large percentage of, I believe, UPS, and I believe also the other shipping services, perhaps including FedEx, although maybe smaller stakes. But I believe they own a significant percentage of, of UPS, at least um, by, by any scale, really. Um... Let's see, Sam Blatt, what are we talking about here? Sam Blatt, Amazon under their own schedule. Sam Blatt, a South Florida-based manager of economic development policy for Amazon, recently spoke about the company's statewide expansion in an address of the Tallahassee Chamber of Commerce. Amazon's plans include opening several Amazon Fresh grocery stores in Florida by 2024, he said. The concept for the chain is to provide unparalleled convenience. Customers at Amazon Fresh stores can walk in, put items in a bag, and leave without having to stand in a checkout line, provided they have a smartphone in the Amazon app, he said. Amazon is also working on new ways to deliver goods to customers. One of the technologies we're employing is my friend Scout here. Blatt said as he showed a photo of one of the six-wheeled delivery robots Amazon began using in Washington State in 2019. The robots travel at walking speed and are, quote, designed for residential neighborhoods to be used in the sidewalks, he said. Wolfrat said Amazon could eventually start using Scout robots in some parts of Florida for food deliveries, but it said for now, the most effective solution appears to be a human being with a van. Not all Amazon experiments work out. On March 2nd, the company announced its decision to close all of its brick-and-mortar bookstores, pop-ups, and stores carrying toys and home goods in the United States and the United Kingdom, according to Reuters and other news reports. The planned closures include Amazon four-star stores in Orlando and Palm Beach Gardens. Proud to be investing in Florida. Amazon, in its 2020 annual report, listed companies that provide fulfillment and logistics services among its competitors. Amazon Chief Financial Officer Brian Oslovsky, Oslovsky, yeah, in a February 3rd conference call with stock analysts, said the company nearly doubled its operations in the past two years, extending our fulfillment center footprint or adding significant transportation assets to ensure fast, on-time delivery. In the past two years, Amazon spent nearly 30% of its capital expenditures on building warehouse space and just under 25% on increasing its transportation capacity. Yeah, transportation capacity throughout the world, Oslovsky told analysts. Going forward, quote, we see that moderating and we see that moderating and that will probably now match the growth of our underlying businesses, he said. Having a bigger distribution and logistics network allows Amazon to provide same day or next day delivery. Uh, to customers for a greater number of goods. In the case of its Amazon Fresh grocery stores, the goal, he said, is to deliver orders within two hours. Blatt, in his address to the Tallahassee Chamber, described Amazon in part as, quote, a logistics company. That role, he said, is the, quote, main bread and butter of our company, nationalized Amazon. The opening Amazon's uh, nearly 2.9 million square foot robotics fulfillment center in Tallahassee, either late this year or early 2023, will add 1,000 workers. That will increase the company's Florida workforce to more than 60,000. It also plans to add a second Tallahassee facility that will be a, quote, last mile delivery station. I guess that would be useful for the capital. 
In addition to its own employees, Amazon's uh, Florida facilities have created more than 90,000 indirect jobs, according to Torres. Amazon's investment in the state since 2010 now exceeds $18 billion, quote, including infrastructure and compensation to our employees, he noted. We're proud to be investing in Florida, said Blatt. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Don't underestimate Amazon. Palm Beach County has a population of 1.5 million people, yet had no Amazon facilities proper to, uh, prior to March 2020. Today it has five, totaling 1.5 million square feet. That includes a 1 million square foot fulfillment center in Jupiter that became the largest in the, in the county, surpassing those of even Walgreens and Publix. Incredible. And for those of you who are unaware, Publix is the biggest um, grocery chain in the southeast. It's kind of its own little private company. Clandestine to the area, but it's omnipresent and pretty much everyone loves it. Um, they are now one of our largest users of industrial space, said Kelly Smallridge, CEO of the Business Development Board of Palm Beach County. Quote, it offers an option in terms of jobs for people who want a more flexible schedule, and it certainly helps in the delivery of packages. I ordered some allergy medication for my dog in the morning and got it by 5.30 that evening. Now that Amazon has essentially built out its distribution network in Florida's major urban areas, it is turning its sights on expanding its reach in less densely populated secondary markets. In Port St. Lucie's Legacy Park, Amazon is touted as one of the first occupants in a new 5.5 million square foot multi-tenant complex. Jeff Greenwald, industrial lead for the park's developer, Sansone Group, said large tracts of buildable land for industrial projects is becoming increasingly difficult to find in South Florida. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it's not like there's other companies doing this too, right? The reality is this, quote, as these e-commerce companies want to continue to expand their footprints and get larger with their distribution space, it becomes even more difficult to find that type of land or labor in South Florida, Greenwald said. So Port St. Lucie offers really the next stop as you come up for both Florida's Turnpike and Interstate 95. It provides a matrix there that's great for distribution, and you can reach 20 million people within a three-hour drive. And when they're saying three-hour drive, they're not talking just about distribution networks. They're also talking about employee commute times, which is really disturbing. The 220,000-square-foot Amazon facility under construction at Legacy Park isn't operational yet, but Greenwalt said his company is already focused on building out a similar-sized industrial park in Ocala and another build-to-suit project in Sarasota. Amazon has planned facilities in those cities as well. Quote, We're working at some of those secondary industrial markets today much differently than we would have two or three years ago, he said. Dustin Wells, Senior Vice President of Business Development for Enterprise Florida, the state's economic development arm, said it makes sense for companies such as Amazon to seek out areas that aren't as saturated commercially but still offer easy access to interstate highways. Quote, you know you need to service X amount of people in the radius. You're looking at Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, and a lot of this is just going outside these communities. So there's still the draw of the workforce. But a little further out of the price... A little further out, the pricing is better, and there's more land availability, said Wells. According to USA Today Network's research, Amazon opened its first facilities in Florida in 2014, six locations in Polk, Orange, and Miami-Dade, and Hillsborough counties. Jacksonville saw its first Amazon facilities open in 2017. Those five locations filled a staggering 4.9 million square feet of Duval County industrial space. The e-commerce giant has since added five more, with two additional projects possibly in the works. Consequently, 
warehouse space has become increasingly scarce in Duval, according to Rory, uh, Rory Dubin, a realtor with Exit Real Estate Gallery in Jacksonville. Dubin is treasurer of the Northeast Florida Association of Realtors. Quote, the direct effect of Amazon is it has further stressed a low inventory of available warehouse space in the greater Jacksonville era, he said. Quote, the amount of space zoned for warehouse development is extremely low right now. It's very hard to find. According to a commercial realtor, David Murphy of CBRE in Orlando, CB Richard Ellis, in the past three years, developers completed projects that added more than 35.2 million square feet of industrial space in Florida. And for the scale of the kind of uh, commercial realtor we're talking about, CBRE is kind of the main company that rents out um, large properties in like New York City and L.A. Um, while that sounds like a lot, is nothing compared to the amount that end users leased or bought during that same period, more than 54 million square feet. That increase in, quote, net absorption, largely driven by Amazon and other e-commerce companies, pushed the state's overall vacancy rate down to 4.1% as of the end of 2021 from 52 at the end of 2019. It has also caused rents as well as land prices for buildable industrial sites to soar. Murphy said statewide industrial rental rates have risen an average of more than 7% in the last three years. In some areas, the increase has been much higher. Here in the Volusia Flagler market, we're approaching all-time highs for industrial properties, said Carl Lentz IV, the managing partner of SVN Alliance, commercial real estate advisors in Ormond Beach. Quote, I say rents have risen at least 50%. Rising construction costs as a result of the pandemic are also contributing to the, quote, sticker shock seekers of industrial space are now experiencing, Lentz said. Despite the increasing overall rents and the land prices for industrial properties in the Daytona Beach area uh, remaining 10 to 15 percent lower than major urban centers such as Orlando and Jacksonville, he said. Despite the increased overall rents. Okay. Um, interesting. Well, that'll catch up. The growing scarcity of industrial properties in Florida is benefiting owners of yet-to-be-developed industrial land. Aha! Yes, yet-to-be-developed industrial land. We love yet-to-be-developed industrial land. But it is hurting smaller companies in need of space that can't afford the higher rents. The people really having a challenging time are the smaller users who need the spaces under 20,000 square feet, Lentz said. In Brevard County, Amazon recently completed a 202,044-square-foot delivery station off Grissom Parkway in Cocoa. Another 141,360-square-foot delivery station in Sarno Road in Melbourne is under construction. Both are set to open this year. Quote, we are pleased to have them in our community, said Angela Essing, economic development manager for Coco. Quote, Amazon is a very nice compliment to the other businesses that we have in the city. Melbourne Mayor Paul Alfrey said he hopes area residents continue to support small businesses in downtown Melbourne and elsewhere, even with Amazon's growing presence. The mayor has made uh, large oversights in his comments in that situation. That's always a concern, Alfred said, but it can be an opportunity for small businesses to update their business plan and business model, like turning into uh, empty storefronts and escape rooms. Thomas LaFleur, uh, vice president of industry relations at CareerSource, Brevard, having two Amazon facilities poised to open in Brevard County could be a selling point in attracting other companies. Quote, when you say we have a couple of Amazons in the area, I think that's attractive, he said. 
Port Canaveral Chief Executive Officer John Murray said Amazon is making additional inroads into cargo shipping by sea, including chartering ships and building its own 53-foot-long shipping containers, longer than the standard 20- and 40-foot containers typically used at sea. The containers are more suitable for transferring onto trucks. Murray said there is talk about the shipping industry... Oh, in the shipping industry, that Amazon could someday have his own fleet of cargo ships, absolutely will, as a way to, quote, cut the middleman out. Quote, don't underestimate Amazon. Excuse me. He said, quote, they don't tell you what they're doing until it's done. Or you could just read between the lines and figure it out by reading this article. In the Fort Myers area, Amazon quietly opened its first delivery station in February 2019 in an old warehouse off Treeline Avenue near Daniels Parkway. Since then, it has expanded its footprint tremendously. Off Alico Road, just west of I-75, the company has a warehouse and a distribution center stretching nearly 300,000 square feet. It opened late last year, and there are plans to build an even bigger center across the street. In the city of Fort Myers, Amazon plans yet another big warehouse and distribution center. It would span nearly 1.5 million square feet with a proposed investment of more than $250 million. Quote, we certainly welcome any business into the city, especially those that are going to create jobs, said Fort Myers Mayor Kevin Anderson. In the Naples area, Amazon opened a 112-square-foot distribution center in June 2021. Pandemic accelerated a trend. Murphy said the race is on throughout Florida by e-commerce companies and retailers to add distribution centers. Quote, in the old days, you could order from a catalog and be fine with receiving it within 7 to 10 business days, said Murphy. Quote, in the southeast, Atlanta used to be the distribution hub that served Florida. You could have a hub and spoke model where the hub was in Atlanta. Today, that model does not work. Consumers today want to receive orders within one to two days, he said. That requires having delivery stations within a two-hour drive of households. Murphy said the pandemic accelerated the growth of e-commerce companies as more consumers switched to making their online purchases while hunkering down in their homes. Quote, it fast-forwarded the trend that was already taking place, already taking place by five years. Sure. This made everyone move faster. It's a national trend, but it's particularly strong in growth markets like Florida. In today's world, the best supply chain wins, Murphy said. There's been a change from just-in-time inventories to just-in-time uh, to just-in-case inventories. Companies are realizing they're better off having more supply than not enough. Amazon's Olszlowski acknowledged that as much in a quarterly earnings conference call to stock analysts in October 2020. Quote, we are erring on the side of having too much capacity, he said. Adding more warehouse space also allows e-commerce companies to handle returned goods. Some customers might order, quote, two pairs of shoes because they don't know what size will fit, said Murphy. The presence of Amazon's fulfillment center in Deltona, its delivery station in Daytona Beach, and the robotics center now being built near Daytona International Speedway are already generating more interest in Volusia County from other companies interested in opening distribution centers in Florida, said Kent Sharples, president of the CEO Business Alliance. <laughs> what, a, what an organization. Uh, the CEO Business Alliance. The alliance is a group of business leaders who will take part in efforts to recruit companies to the county. Quote, the fact that Amazon chose our area opens up the eyes of other companies concerned about supply chain issues, said Sharples. Volusia County offers the advantage of being at the nexus of Interstates 95 and 4, he added. 
Murphy concurs. We're seeing a massive increase in distribution centers throughout the east-west I-4 corridor, but particularly where it intersects with I-75 and I-95, he said, referring to the state's two main north-south transportation corridors. Two-thirds of the uh, truck traffic in Florida. Oh, wow. Two thirds of the truck traffic in Florida currently comes down I-75, but we're starting to see an increase in truck traffic along I-95 as well. Amazon establishes Florida air cargo hubs. In July 2020, Amazon opened a regional air hub at Lakeland Linder International Airport. Its international, or uh, excuse me, its operations there consist of 223 thousand square foot main facility and two smaller facilities the company also has been leasing space at airports in both miami and tampa in both tampa and miami should i say it's conceivable that amazon could someday fly cargo planes to, to daytona beach international airport as well it's a robotics fulfillment center now under construction in the speedway near the speedway is across the street from the belusia county run airport's main runway Cyrus Callum, Director of Aviation and Economic Resources for Volusia County, said he has spoken with the representatives of Amazon, but the subject of potentially using the Daytona Airport as a regional air hub for the company has yet to come up. He hopes to have that conversation with them soon. Quote, The part of Amazon that's setting up the fulfillment center in is a different function of the company from the segment that is involved in the Amazon Prime Air, Callum said. But there is an opportunity for us to present what we would like to develop at Daytona Beach International Airport that could complement the new robotics fulfillment center. We are interested in the air cargo segment. Increased truck traffic a concern. Daytona Beach City Commissioner Stacy Cantu was one of the commissioners who recently approved an economic incentive package for Amazon. The company can receive up to $4 million in tax incentives if it carries out, out, carries out its pledge to create 1,000 jobs that pay at least $15 an hour and include benefits and invest $175 million to construct, equip, and furnish the planned five-story robotics fulfillment center. I ran for a seat on the Commission on Jobs, she said. What Cantu doesn't welcome is project, develop, uh, project developer Hillwood's plan to build a new access road that will bring trucks to and from the Amazon complex to Belleville Road. It will be directly across from one of the entrances to the Pelican Bay community where she lives. We are not happy that over 600 semi-trucks will be coming in and out of our east gate of Pelican Bay, she said. Several Pelican Bay residents recently held a demonstration rally to protest the location of the planned access road for Amazon. The access road could potentially be used by other businesses as well. NASCAR owns 100 acres next to the Future Robotics Center that is being marked as a development site for other distribution centers and commercial businesses. The airport owns several hundred, hundred, <laughs> the airport owns several hundred acres east of the Amazon property that it also hopes can become an industrial park. More growth to come. Team Volusia Economic Development Corp. CEO Keith Norton says he is thrilled to see Amazon expand in Volusia County. He was part of the public-private partnership group that originally presented the e-commerce giant with a list of potential distribution sites in the county in 2013. Norton said he was not surprised Amazon ultimately chose to build three logistics facilities in Volusia County. He wouldn't rule out the possibility of more in the future. We still continue to meet with them because of their growth potential, he said. And with that, I have a little more to continue with here. Okay. Let's back up a little bit. Okay, this is 
News Press, Monday, March 21st, 2022. We're going to a little bit of an extended play. Another article in the series. And I will continue because you will appreciate this. I guarantee. E-commerce showdown. And there's an inset photo above. Publix of Florida's undisputed grocery giant. Could Amazon's increasing moves in the market give this homegrown brand a run for its money? Florida will see the heated battle for grocery shoppers' dollars between Publix and Amazon. By Paul Nutcher of the Lakeland Ledger, the USA Today Network. This is continuing the series. The battle between Publix and Amazon for grocery sales is going to get more heated, but don't count Publix out. In the foreseeable future, a few competitors will have the strategic advantages to beat Publix and grocery sales in Florida, industry experts say. Public Supermarkets, Inc. enjoys a loyal base of shoppers who repeatedly restock their pantries and refrigerators because of its focus on customer service. The employee-owned Lakeland-based grocer is often rewarded with high, ranking, uh, high rankings on the top 10 lists for its efforts to keep those customers coming back and employees happy. Still, will it be enough? Sam Blatt, Amazon's South Florida-based manager of economic development policy, spoke for nearly 30 minutes at the Tallahassee Chamber of Commerce's annual breakfast meeting on February 23rd. From the Carolinas to Florida, he's primarily responsible for ensuring new fulfillment and other logistics centers are completed to Amazon's standards, and that the company can put down roots in the communities in which its centers are located and rule us for the rest of our lives. My job is to help us get our facilities up and running, making sure that we're welcome in the community and we're doing everything to be uh, everything right to be part of the community, Blatt said. Quote, so it involves all the boring stuff, like land use changes and zoning and permits and making sure the community wants us, because we don't want to go somewhere where the community doesn't want us. Won't stop them, won't stop them, won't stop them, of course it won't stop them. Quote, so it involves all the boring stuff, like land use changes and zoning and permits and making sure the community wants us, because we don't want to go somewhere where the community doesn't want us. Since 2010, Amazon has hired more than 59,000 full and part-time employees in Florida, a, nearly, uh, a new nearly 2.9 million square foot robotics fulfillment center is under construction in Tallahassee and is expected to increase the company's statewide workforce by more than 1,000 employees. The Tallahassee Fulfillment Center, codenamed Project Mango, will be Amazon's 14th in Florida with even more in the works. Amazon's operations currently generate $18 billion a year to the state's economy, said Blatt. Quote, we are proud to call Florida home, Blatt said. We are proud to be investing in Florida. Here are some of the highlights of his talk. Amazon co-founded the Climate Pledge in 2019, calling for a company commitment to have zero net carbon emissions by 2040. It plans to invest more than $2 billion towards services and products to accomplish that goal. By 2025, all the company's delivery stations throughout the country will be powered by electric vans. In addition, Blatt said all the company's operations will be powered by 100% renewable energy by the same year. Facilities will use solar natural gas and wind power such as a 253 megawatt wind farm in texas that began operating in 2017 ironically amazon is growing its own tail presence considering it's disrupted the retail industry with its e-commerce model and challenged brick and mortar companies the company however wants to become a retail force with the amazon fresh a grocery delivery service that will incorporate brick and mortar stores quote we're looking to open a bunch of different amazon fresh grocery stores around the country in the coming years including several in florida by 2024 platt said these are going to be grocery stores that you can go into naturally the grocery stores that will quote have an amazon twist said blatt with the help of quote walkout technology customers will be able to do in-store shopping and leave the store without standing in line at self-checkout 
or at self-checkout transactions as long as they have a smartphone in the Amazon app. Quote, you're not committing a crime, Blatt said, referring to customers who simply pick out their items and walk out the plan Amazon fresh stores, which we've seen plenty of other articles. In the next few years, Amazon hopes to deliver some products to customers within 30 minutes of order. Since 2017, walking speed scout robots have been using have been uh, used in the Seattle area where Amazon has its headquarters. They're designed for residential neighborhoods and to be used on sidewalks, Blatt said. The company hopes to eventually deploy the scouts to make deliveries in some parts of Florida, he said. That'll happen pretty soon. Just a matter of time. And there you go. Now you're up to date on Florida taking over uh, a lot. Simon Leviev, a.k.a. the Tinder Swindler. By the way, this is in Tuesday, March 1st, 2022's New York Post. Yes, it's from the past, but, uh, you know, I just watched it. Now I have context. Simon Leviev, a.k.a. the Tinder Swindler, is being sued for millions by the real Leviev diamond family he pretended to have ties with. Page six has learned. Israeli-Russian diamond tycoon Lev Leviev and his family, including daughter Shagit Leviev, CEO of the Leviev Group USA, have launched legal action against the notorious fraudster at the center of his Netflix stock. Quote, for a long time, Simon has been making false representations as being the son of Lev Leviev and receiving numerous benefits, including material ones, cunningly and using false words, claiming to be a member of the Leviev family and that his family will pay and bear the costs. The lawsuit alleges, according to the court documents obtained by page six. Per these docs, the family alleges that Simon, born Shimon Hayut, used Tinder to, quote, locate women who he then emotionally manipulated, cunningly bamboozled out of funds, and eventually convinced to transfer large sums of money to him under the guise of being on the run from individuals intending on hurting him. Definitely never experienced anything like that in my life. Simon served two and a half years in a Finnish prison for defrauding three women and did time in an Israeli prison for fraud. Now a free man, a Tinder swindler... The Tinder swindler is attempting to live off his notoriety by selling tasteless t-shirts with a logo, quote, if she really loves you, she'll take out a loan for you. Quote, we started hearing word about Simon Leviev in 2017. Shagi exclusively told page six. There are nine siblings in my family, five brothers, and none of them are called Simon and four girls. She heard from, quote, diamond dealers that he'd made out checks of $350,000 in her name, but they were not our checks. Then another company called us and said we owe them $600,000 for private jets. They sent me a picture of his passport. It was Shimon Hayut. Shagit said, then they went to the police in Israel, but Shimon was moving through so many different countries, it was hard to keep track of him. A rep for Shimon did not respond to comment, although he has previously denied wrongdoing. Hair Today. Matthew McConaughey got candid about his significant hair loss in the late 90s and its seemingly magical regrowth, with help from a special serum he still uses today. In his memoir, Green Lights, and a recent interview, the actor above said he began shaving his head years ago because the thinning was so severe. How did he grow it back? That's a great mystery, McConaughey told Lad Bible, including he rubbed topical ointment onto his scalp once a day. I was fully committed to it. No propecia, no nothing. It was just manual labor, the Texan said. I have more hair now than I had in 1999. He said that a Beverly Hills surgeon was spreading false rumors that the Oscar winner paid a big bucks for a transplant. Hmm. Yep, that's enough of that. Okay. 
Uh, this is from Monday, January 31st, 2022's New York Times, the international section, page A8. I've been holding on to this for a while. I have mentioned it previously, and I just wanted to get into it a little bit because, um, I don't know. It, the photos are striking, but also it just, it just needs to be covered. Making a Living Sifting Through Senegal's Plastic by Ruth McLean. Photographs by Finbar O'Reilly, which I'll discredit him because his photographs are quite striking. I suggest you go look up some photos from this uh, story. Dakar, Senegal. A crowd of people holding curved metal spikes jumped into onto trash, spilling out of a dump truck in Senegal's biggest landfill, hacking at the garbage to find valuable plastic. Nearby sleeves rolled up, suds up to their elbows, women washed plastic jerry cans in rainbow colors cut into pieces. Around them, piles of broken toys, plastic mayonnaise jars, and hundreds of discarded synthetic wigs stretched as far as the eye could see, all ready to be sold and recycled. Plastic waste is exploding in Senegal, as in many countries, as populations and incomes grow, and with them demand for packaged, mass-produced products. This has given a rise to a growing industry built around recycling plastic waste by businesses and citizens alike. From Chinese traders to furniture makers and avant-garde fashion designers, many in Senegal make use of the constant stream of plastic waste. Mabubis, the dump site serving Senegal's seaside capital of Dakar, is where it all begins. More than 2,000 trash pickers, as well as scrubbers, choppers, haulers on horse-drawn carts, middlemen, and wholesalers make a living by finding, preparing, and transporting the waste for recycling. It adds up to a huge informal economy that supports thousands of families. Over more than 50 years at the dump, Pape Nidaye, the dozen, uh, excuse me, the doyen of waste pickers, has watched the community that lives off the dump grow and seen them turn plastic, a material that 20 years ago the pickers considered worthless. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to re repeat that entire paragraph. Over more than 50 years at the dump, Pape Nadaye, the doyen of the waste pickers, has watched the community that lives off the dump grow and seen them turn to plastic, a material that 20 years ago the pickers considered worthless. Quote, We are the people protecting the environment, said Mr. Nadaye, 76, looking out uh, at the plastic scattered over the Goye Gi, his corner of the dump. Everything that pollutes it, we take to the industries, and they transform it. Despite all the efforts to recycle, much of Senegal's waste never makes it to landfills, instead littering the landscape. Knock off Adidas sandals and containers that once held a local version of Nutella block drains. Knockoff Adidas sandals and containers that once held a local version of Nutella block drains. Aha. Thin plastic bags that once contained drinking water meander back and forth in the Senegalese surf like jellyfish. Plastic shopping bags burn in residential neighborhoods, sending clouds of chemical-smelling smoke into the hazy air. Senegal is just one of many countries trying to clean up and formalize the waste distribution system and embrace the recycling on a bigger scale. By 2023, the American Union says the goal is that 50% of the waste used in African cities should be recycled. But this means that Senegal also has to grapple with the informal system that has grown up over decades, of which the grand dump at Mabusbas, oh, excuse me, pronounced Mabembees, Mabembees, there we go, is a major part. The plastic recycled makes it to enterprises of all stripes across Senegal, which has one of the most robust economies in West Africa. 
At a factory in Thies, an inland city known for its tapestry industry to the east of Dakar, recycled plastic pellets are spun out into long skines, which are then woven onto the colorful plastic mats that are used in almost every Senegalese household. Custom-made mats from this factory lined the catwalk in Dakar Fashion Week in December, focused this time on sustainability held in a baobab forest. Signs were constructed out of old water bottles. Tables and chairs were made of melted-down plastic. This trend changed the focus of waste pickers who have worked the dump for decades, gleaning anything of value. Quote, Now everyone's working for plastic, said Mamahudu Wade, 50, smiling broadly as he brewed a pot of sweet minty tea outside his sorting shack in Labimbes, where he has been a waste picker for over 20 years. Aja Saini Diop, sitting on a wooden bench by the shack in the kind of long, elegant dress favored by Senegalese women, agreed. When she first began waste picking at age 11 in 1998, nobody was interested in buying plastic, she said. So she left it in the trash heap, collecting only scrap and metal. But these days, plastic is by far the easiest thing to sell to middlemen and traders. She supports her family on the income she makes there, between $25 and $35 a week. Mr. Wade and Miss Diop work together at Bok Jom, a kind of informal union representing over half of Mebusbus waste pick handlers. I'm going to say it again. Mbebes. 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 Mbebis. Yes, that's what it is. Mbebis. Okay, one more time. Mr. Wade and Miss Diop work together at Bach John, a kind of informal union representing over half of Mbebis. 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 Yeah, that's good. Representing over half of Mbebis waste pickers. And most of them spend their days searching for plastic. A few days later, I bumped into Miss Diop in her workplace, a towering platform made entirely of rancid waste that is so hostile an environment that it is known as Yemen. I almost didn't recognize her. With her face obscured by bandanas, two hats, and sunglasses to protect her against the particles of trash blowing in every direction. Around us, herds of long, white-horned, uh, white longhorn cattle munched on garbage as dozens of pickers sended upon each dump truck employing... Around us, herds of white longhorn cattle munched on garbage as dozens of pickers descended on each dump truck, emptying its load. Some young men even hung from the tops of trucks to catch precious plastics that spilled out of the trucks before bulldozers came to sweep what remained to the edge of the trash mountain. Most of the pickers who target plastic, like Miss Diope, sell it at about 13 cents a kilogram to two Chinese plastic merchants who have depots on the landfill site. The merchants process it into pellets and ship it to China to be made into new goods, said Abdu Dieng, the manager of Mabesbus. Mm. Mabebis. That's what it is. It's Mabebis. The merchants process it into pellets and ship it to China to be made into new goods, said Abdu Dieng, the manager of Mabebis, who works for Senegal's growing waste management agency and has brought little order to the chaos of the landfill. Senegal is flooded with other countries' plastic waste as well as its own. Thank you for sticking with me. China stopped accepting the world's unprocessed plastic waste in 2018. Casting around for new countries to export it to, the U.S. began to 
ship plastic to other countries, including Senegal. But that is beginning to change, too, as the Senegalese government appears to be cracking down on plastic waste coming from abroad. Last year, a German company was fined $3.4 million when one of its ships was caught trying to smuggle 25 tons of plastic waste into Senegal. In the past two years, the number of trucks coming to the dump daily increased from 500 to 300. And that dump is named Mbebe's. 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 In the past two years, the number of trucks coming to Mbembe's daily has increased from 500 to 300. But the government says that in a few years, the giant landfill will close, replaced by a much smaller sorting and composting centers as part of a joint project with the World Bank. Then, the most money made from plastic waste will go into government coffers. The waste pickers will worry about their livelihoods. Hmm. Mr. Ndaye, the last of the original waste pickers who came in to Mbembe's in 1970, surveyed what had been his workplace for the past half century. He remembered the large baobab under which he used to take tea breaks, now long dead, replaced by piles of plastic. They know that there's money in it, he said, about the government, and they know that they want to control it. But Mr. Dieng, the government dump manager, insisted that the pickers would never would either be given jobs at the new sorting centers quote, or we would help them find a new job that would allow them to live better than before. That doesn't reassure everyone. Quote, there are many changes, said Magit Diop, a project officer at Wiego, a nonprofit organization focused on uh, the working poor worldwide. Quote, and the working place of waste pickers in these changes is not clear. For now, though, hundreds of waste pickers have to keep on picking, dodging bulldozers, piles of animal guts and cattle, with curved metal spikes and trash bags in their hands, they head back into the fray. Hats off to everyone at Abembase. It's, uh, it's, it's a murky path. And much like uh, what I have just unfolded, which would be drama, 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 and now comedy, here's a little bit from Comedy, 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 Drama, the autobiography of uh, written by Bob Odenkirk. Although, I do want to back up a little bit and read the introduction. All right. Introduction. How does one begin a book? A letter, a word, soon a sentence, then another, and suddenly a paragraph is begotten. A two-sentence paragraph. Dickens, Melville, Odenkirk, all have faced the same query, and only one has failed. Melville. Call me Ishmael. Talk about giving up. How about starting with an intention? I will attempt to identify the, quote, big breaks wormholes of opportunity that allowed me to move ahead five or ten spaces, or that simply set me in the right direction. There are obvious ones. Getting hired as a writer of Saturday Night Live, being given the plum role of Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, and lots of not-so-obvious ones. I'd like to point to some of the less obvious ones, especially, to drive home the cold fact that these breaks come in all sizes, and often don't look like breaks when they happen. 
Most of this book is about my time in the comedy trenches, but then there's the part about drama, enacting with a capital A, bereft of buffoonery. How about starting with a warning? You hold... Uh, <laughs> have to laugh at the comedy book. How about starting with a warning? You hold failure in your hands, dear reader. The bad breaks, if you will. Don't look away. I want your eyes to behold my floundering, and I want you to laugh at it. Go ahead. Mock me. Because the sheer amount of failure is worth a sneering chortle. I will grace your eyeballs with a bunch of words about projects you never heard of. Pilots, outlines, presentations, stumbles, dead ends, moonshots that ended up under a pile of rocks. Some were worthy, some less so. Often, they just got weaker as they were pursued and ended up neither here nor there. Misfires. Some of them delight me to recount. They still bring me a wistful smile. Others leave me red with shame, shaking my head at myself still. What was I thinking? I wish I knew. These projects that went off the rails are as big a part of my slog through the muck of showbiz. I am writing about them because of all the lessons I learned from them. Did I learn any lessons from them? I believe William Goldman nailed it with, quote, nobody knows anything. Let me add to that. Nobody learns much either. But I will regale you with as many of these dead ends as I can recall. Keep them coming, Gleep Glop. I promise that if I can ascertain a pithy, a pithy truism, I'll cough it up under these pages so you can append it to your secret success journal. Also, why is your success journal a secret? Tell everyone about it. We want you to win. I'm on your side. Here's what I can admit to right out the gate. And it's tragic. I tried just as hard at the stuff that didn't work as I did at the stuff that worked. What's the upshot? In writing this ink guzzler, the biggest shock to me was to discover how single-minded I was. For decades, I pursued my love of sketch comedy like a cartoon horse chasing a carrot. And what'd you know? I actually got a couple bites out of it. After enjoying that sketch comedy carrot, I went looking for other carrots. Clop, clop, clop went my dumb old hooves until one day, out of nowhere, dramatic acting opportunities came along. Drama turned out to be a weird carrot that I sort of like, and it sort of likes me. This carrot analogy is now over, and I am not sad to see it go. It was a burden for both of us. So now I find myself in drama. Of all things, comedy is enemy. In the past decade or so, I have been called upon to not mock, but to empathize with humanity, to overcome and discover dignity in every character, even when the character's most notable quality is his lack of dignity. It's a new kind of challenge, approaching humanity's foibles from a sympathetic stance. My work is turned inside out. For the first 30 years of my character, I did nothing but compromise my, uh, my career. I did nothing but compromise my character's dignity. Kissing elephants' asses, see Mr. Show, prenatal pageant, turning Charles Manson into Lassie, the Ben Stiller show, Manson, and scripting the brief heartbreaking tale of, of a motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river. You know that one. So from laughable indignity to tear-jerking dignity, maybe not tear-jerking, but how about tear-welling, to a touch of ultraviolence. This, then, is the strange trajectory that my journey has taken, and I'll try to make some sense out of it in these pages and give crazy luck its due. Hey, Bob, sorry to interrupt, but why are you writing a book about yourself? You're not dying, are you? Some people might think it's a bit premature of me to be writing a memoir. I hope it is. Here's what happened. Ben Greenberg, a big New York editor, he made me put that in, called me out of the clear blue. It was an afternoon in L.A., and I was sitting on my porch, gazing at the barbecue, thinking, I should probably clean that thing sometime this decade. And he planted the seed. Why don't you write a memoir? 
I'd recently read a showbiz memoir by an actor I respected. It was chock full of stories about Broadway shows, movies, and classic television shows. I enjoyed it, but also it made me feel kind of bad. I knew my kids, then in their late teens, wouldn't know a bit about what he was talking about. Not a single project, even though some of them were true classics. Culture moves incredibly fast these days, and I figured that if I wanted anyone in the general public to even have a passing knowledge of the projects that would, f- that would fill my harangue, I better get to getting. Look, most of the greatest stuff I've done is classified under, quote, cult hits. And that is using the word hit brazenly. So if I had to write this thing now, <laughs> so I had to write this thing now, before my reference points get smothered under the stream of fresher cultural goop that cascades upon us all day and night from our devices. But also... Just two days before that faded phone call, I had a conversation with an actress who told me about auditioning for an improv team at a hotshot L.A. theater school. This was before coronavirus temporarily shut the doors to on live theater. She was in line with more than 1,000 hungry-for-stage-time performers. 1,000? I asked, alarmed and daunted. That's too many people lining up to make stuff up. <laughs> I thought about when I was starting out, about how serious showbiz was to me then about how far away and impossible it felt. Let me back up. I thought about how it, I thought about how when I was starting out, about how mysterious showbiz was to me then. How far away and impossible. If I'd been asked to get in a thousand person line just to improvise, forget it. I would have n- never stood in that line. But the conversation brought me back to just how unknowable a career in showbiz was to a kid from Naperville, Illinois. It was just a completely ungraspable pursuit. How is it done, I wondered. I just want the nitty-gritty, and please focus on the gritty. Maybe by writing about my journey, I can give some young hack a sense of making a career happen, calm their nerves, or maybe drive them away. Or, who knows, provide someone with a shortcut to fame. I like shortcuts, big breaks, and showbiz memoirs. Also, I'm dying, in the sense that we all are. And on that bright note, buy the book already. Your plain and or toilet seat awaits. Comedy, comedy, Comedy drama by Bob Odenkirk. And if that introduction didn't sell you the book, I don't know what will. Now, to move back into uh, another chapter of a book that we've been uh, looking at lately, and maybe I'll close it up with some fun stories, but I just want to get into this. Uh, here. I'm going to read a little bit more of Daniel J. Lindemann's uh, true story. Now, I want to, I want, I would love to say, uh, I do have another podcast. I am, I'm making with a, another co-host, Kathy. We are, we're, it's, it's, it, it is, hmm, it does have a name now. It's reality issues. We've done episode zero. We're recording episode one later today. Um, this book wasn't necessarily the inspiration for it all, but uh, it certainly helped. And I would say that uh, watching the hundreds of episodes of reality TV I have and the growing number all the time, I would say that uh, there's never been a book more interesting on the subject than uh, this one right here. So I will read you a little bit more. This time we're going to focus on Chapter 10, Bad Boys bad boys deviance 
Adele has been eating couch cushions for nearly 20 years. Quote, on a daily basis, I probably eat about an eight and a half by 11 piece of cushion, she explains. I take a little bite-sized piece. I just take little bite-sized pieces and snack on it all day. Driving in her car, she leans over and extracts some of the pieces from her purse, depositing them into her mouth like popcorn. The darker cushion, the yellow cushion, it tastes better. It just has a stronger flavor. Adele attributes the beginning of her cushion eating to her parents' divorce when she was a preteen. I couldn't control my parents. I couldn't stop them from splitting up. So there was just a lot that I couldn't control, and this was something that I could. Meanwhile, her habit presents a health hazard, and her family is concerned. So now you're 30, and when you were 16, I tolerated it. And now it's time to put a stop to it, her mom tells her, 14 years too late. (laughs) I want this to be over, Adele affirms, reaching out for her mom's hand across the restaurant table. And I want help. We've seen how reality TV exposes the key categories and distinctions that organize our lives. But perhaps the most fundamental distinction in any culture, as illustrated on this episode of TLC's My Strange Addiction, 2010 to 2015, is between the acceptable and the unacceptable. We've already gotten a peek at how we try to curb the unacceptable behavior in ways that sync up with other major social hierarchies, class, gender, race, sexuality. Here we get an eyeful. Unscripted TV is primed to teach us why people step out of line, how we respond to that, and why we're drawn to watching them, and what that says about us. And ultimately, may we analyze and think about the term unscripted TV and compare it to the term reality TV here. Ultimately, from these shows, we learn why we want to draw this distinction sharply. We all inhibit a hazy space between normal and abnormal. Our ideas about what's normal and what's not are vital to how we treat others and distribute our social status. Yet, reality TV, both people and those on the programs uh, on the programs and our viewing of them, chisels away the boundary between normal and abnormal until it erodes, revealing it to be a social construction rather than a durable, essential truth. And I would say that you can apply the exact same thinking to podcasting and all podcasts, podcasting, podcasters, and all forms of media, writers, authors, waxers, philosophical, artists, photographers, videographers, creators, influencers, musicians, rappers, Our ideas about what's normal and what's not are vital to how we treat others and distribute social status. Yet reality TV, both the people on these programs and our viewing of them, chisels away at the boundary between normal and abnormal until it erodes, revealing it to be a social construction rather than a durable, essential truth. What is deviance? It might be drawing for the layperson to see the terms deviance and deviants used so casually in this chapter. In everyday life, these words can have a moralistic ring to them. However, social scientists use them in a purely descriptive way, to refer to behavior and people who fall outside of society's norms. Consider the term standard deviation in statistics. Scholars of evidence... (laughs) Scholars of evidence, that's me. Scholars of deviance, also me, have looked at our misfits, madmen, and other marginalized people paradoxically to understand mainstream social life. 
The sociologist Harold Garfinkel, for instance, famously had his students participate in, quote, breaching experiments in which they would violate commonplace norms, for example, by going into shops and haggling over the price of goods. Through these small-scale disruptive practices, they exposed our tacit everyday social guidelines. Reality programming is a rich site for this type of investigation. While its participants are like us in many ways, many of them are also quirky personalities who represent the extremes of human behavior. Through their rule violations, they expose how we socially construct the normal. No act is inherently deviant outside the meaning society gives to it. Let's think about that again. No act is inherently deviant outside the meaning society gives to it. As the sociologist Howard Becker reminds us, before any act can be viewed as deviant, and before any class of people can be labeled and treated as outsiders for committing the act, someone must have made the rule which defines the act as deviant. We may feel that certain activities just are bad or strange or wrong, but these designations are in fact culturally generated, as they differ across history and context. For example, killing another human may be considered acceptable in times of war or when it applies to state-sanctioned punishment. In fact, while some ideas about what's wrong hold up more robustly across context, e.g. <coughs> incest. Oh. <coughs> Weird time to just cough, I, I promise. Uh, yikes. It's called the, the podcaster's timing. For the record, I have no siblings. Um... For example, killing another human may be considered acceptable in times of war when it applies to state-sanctioned punishment. In fact, while some ideas about what's wrong hold up more robustly across context, e.g. incest, than others, table manners, there are none that apply to every epoch, location, and circumstance. Why be weird? Why don't deviants just conform? Conformity is certainly easier in some ways. As Emile Durkheim points out, we can incur negative consequences for being deviant. So while it's possible for us to free ourselves from social facts, we can't do it without struggle. Yet, he also observes that deviance exists in every society. Again, note that Durkheim's use of the word deviance and my own use of it does not imply judgment. It's simply a neutral sociological term for non-normative behavior. And while some people may just be naturally, quote, pathological, Durkheim concedes there are social explanations for their nonconformity as well. One way sociologists have accounted for deviance is that people learn to be nonconforming in the same way that they learn to conform. In a classic 1953 study of marijuana users, for instance, Becker found that every element of illegal drug use has a social component. As one learns the various meanings associated with pot, how to get it, the procedures for smoking it, and even how it's supposed to make one feel. That's footnoted. I might want to follow up on that one. This is another notable instance of how our ideas about deviance differ historically. Becker's mid-century example may seem less deviant today as some states move towards legalization of the drug. The theory of, quote, differential association similarly suggests that our social environment plays a key role in whether or not uh, or and how we become deviant. Specifically, it argues that whether or not we participate in criminal behavior is largely a function of the social networks in which we are embodied and embedded. For example, some, uh, for some inmates, being part of prison networks and learning from those connections and not being supplied with alternative networks or skills facilitate additional criminal behavior upon their release. Yeah. Yeah. 
Differential association is one factor that helps to explain why spending time in prison leads to more lucrative criminal activity upon release. I would also say that a crucial uh, component to uh, a lot of what people call the uh, creative gene, much like uh, Hideo Kojima titled his book, I would say that the creative gene, if anything, is actually shared between uh, cultural deviants that create the culture that we love and enjoy. The things that make it the furthest really are the biggest cultural derivations. But the key is acceptable cultural deviants. And I would say that most artists are deviants, people much farther from the norm than possible. And a lot of artists take their deviant nature, make it a little bit more digestible, approachable, package it down, um, and create a product out of it to sell if they're lucky, if they figure out in time before they completely lose it how to sell their product. Um, but I would say that people who live in this fringe world, cultural deviants, as they say, these cultural deviants are actually the people on the fringes and most likely, if inspired, if given the things that they need, if given the tools that they need, if given the inspiration that they need. These people... The people at the hands of our culture, the people with their hands on the wheel, are people that, there are people with names that we don't know. Or if we do know, we know their handle. We know their online presence. We know some of those people. Those are the people, those are the cultural deviants that drive the underbed that allows people at the top of the pile to curate and pick those opinions to pull out and then make money off of them. You and I and everyone around us generates the culture that everyone else profits off of. And the sooner that we all figure that out and the sooner that we are allowed to apply our own tools to that knowledge, the sooner that we all succeed in our own ways doing exactly what we want to do instead of the things that uh, society has presented for us. And I'll let you uh, think about that in your own world in your own terms, because that means something different, probably, to everyone. It meant something different to me than it meant to uh, the writer of this book and all those people um, out there. Because it shows us unusual nooks of society, reality TV is particularly primed to reveal how deviants are socially created. Programs involving children particularly enforce this notion that some forms of deviants are taught. The kids who learn survivalist procedures from their parents and ready themselves for the world to end on doomsday preppers, National Geographic 2011-2014, for instance, fit this bill. Both the children and adults on my big fat American gypsy wedding likewise demonstrate how atypical behaviors germinate in particular social environments. On one episode of the show, which purports to show the marriage practices of the Romani Americans, gypsies, I'm so glad that they noted that, 14-year-old Priscilla is looking for a husband. In its first few minutes, the episode draws a series of stark distinctions between the culture in which Priscilla has been raised and the American mainstream. Tucked into the shadows of Douglasville, Georgia, as narrator explains, is a secret community that is home to uh, Rom Romanical gypsies, which I should know because I share lineage in that world. The narrator goes on to assert the gypsy way of life is, quote, completely foreign to gorgers, the gypsy form for uh, the gypsy term for outsiders. Fascinating. Gorgers. Can remember that. For example, 
Though barely into her teens, gypsy, gypsy tradition decrees that Priscilla will soon wed. The most 14-year-old gorger girls are in school, explains Priscilla, who dropped out at age 12 to do chores and help raise her little brother. But I'm here cleaning, and that's the way I like it to be, said a 12-year-old. Courtship doesn't start at 25 when you're a gypsy, her mom told us. This is her engagement time. Gypsy girls, Priscilla says, are, quote, raised our lives around, finding the perfect husband, marrying and maintaining a home. As we've seen, children become little vessels for their parents' cultural values, and that's the case whether those values are middle of the road or off the beaten path. Like the young people on Breaking Amish, Priscilla illustrates and illuminates how different social environments can generate different types of expectations. Teen marriages and truancy may be considered deviant within mainstream American society, but nobody bats an eye within her gypsy community. Another sociological explanation for why deviance occurs is that we revert to it when we can't get what we want through typical channels. Strain theory, or the means-ends theory of deviance, pioneered by the sociologist Robert Merton, focuses on the misalignment between broad cultural goals, for instance, wealth and fame, and the social mechanisms for meeting those goals. Merton describes the case of the innovator who, lacking the typically but not always economic means to attain success through legitimate means, attempts to achieve it through deviance. While Merton was writing decades before the first real-world season aired, his theory aptly characterizes many participants on reality television, and I would also say in the world of entertainment in general. That's me editorializing. As we've seen, lots of these people wade into the genre in the hope that it's in its current form. Hmm. Let me back up. As we've seen, lots of these people wade into the genre in the hope that in its, its current will propel them forward. The DIY celebrity Cardi B, for instance, who did not have the social connections or education typically necessary to attain wealth, successfully innovated through her use of social media and involvement in love and hip-hop. Although... Becker and Merton were approaching the origins of deviance from different angles. They both hit upon the idea that these behaviors can't be divorced from social context. While we may presume that weirdness is the result of individual differences, variations in innate temperament, and while it is those things, it is not only those things. As reality television's denizens show us, just as the weight of society pushes us to conform, it can push us away from conformity as well. Whether it's the influence of our friends and family or our positions within the social hierarchies, our environmental power fully enforces where we sit on the spectrum of deviance. It says, it says environment power, but I really believe it is environmental power. In my mind, reading in the context that I am, and I'm not saying that she's wrong, I'm saying that my interpretation is that Environment determines a lot, almost everything, almost everything. But it's what you do with your environment, with the tools that you have at your disposal, that gets you what you want. Some people will call it punk. Some people will call it making do with what you have. Um, but really, what it really comes down to is drive. It's about how much do you want that thing? How much do you want it? Are you willing to do everything that it takes? Are you really? Are you really willing to do that? Are you willing to travel? Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to spend that time? Are you willing to spend that money? Are you willing to throw away other things in your life? Are you willing to sacrifice the other things in your life that are important? All of those things are required to break through the environment. 
You know, you can have things handed to you. You can have opportunities laid out for you in the future. And it's great to take those opportunities. There's nothing wrong with taking the opportunities that you have in front of you, but creating your own opportunities as described is finding a new path and creating a creative solution to the problems that you have in front of you. And maybe those problems aren't even problems. Maybe those problems are just what you need to do. Help me if you can. When deviance occurs, what do we do about it? Our response to deviance is also a social process. Whatever the, uh, whatever the reason that people engage in aberrant behavior, reality TV teaches us how we fix ourselves and about the, how we fix ourselves and the ones we love. Makeover Media that has been around for quite some time in her book Smart Living, Lifestyle Media and Popular Expertise, the media scholar Tanya Lewis traces its appeal from etiquette manuals in Victorian England to the emergence of men's magazines such as Playboy and all the way into reality TV land. Today, transformation shows have become a major subgenre of reality TV. At any given moment, you can sink into your couch, aim your remote, and learn how to repair your face, your wardrobe, your house, your kids, your marriage, your diet, or your car. Or your social media profile, if you're watching Catfish. These fixing shows demonstrate what we consider to be wrong and how we react to those perceived wrongnesses. I editorialize there a little bit, but that's the truth. Irving Goffin explains that generally, we have specifically provided ideas about what's ordinary and natural, in quotes, for various types of people in society. That is, we make certain assumptions about what the people around us ought to be. And I think this is crucial to uh, a lot of people's blocking of, I'm just going to put a little mark there. Um, let's see. So, uh, let's see. For various people in society, that is, we make certain assumptions about what the people around us ought to be. Right, so. Okay. When people don't fit into those categories, we think of them as deviants. While we're all likely familiar with the term stigma, coming from the Latin word meaning a mark on one's body, something, of course, from the piercing of Christ's hands, on the crucifix. Uh, well, that's the modern context for it. Anyway. Goffman defines it in a specific way. I'm sure it uh, existed perhaps before. Who knows? Research necessary. Crack a Bible. Crack a liturgical book. Crack a theological research book. glad that this is live edit. I'm glad that we can all sit here and think about the things that I just said and find out if they're real together. Maybe they're not. That's part of the performance. I am deviating. Many different lifestyle makeover programs illuminate the discrediting process. These shows tend to uncover a stigma, Adele's cushion eating, for instance, and demonstrate how it might be remedied. The TLC show Hoarding, Buried Alive, 2010 to 2014, for instance, highlights people who have amassed significant clutter in their homes to the point where it has become a hygiene issue. Or much more. On one issue, <laughs> on one episode, the narrator informs us that many people who hoard keep their disorder a secret, even from their friends and family. And that, quote, Judy has a secret that's been growing harder and harder to keep. Judy ultimately reveals her mess to be a professional organizer. 
to a professional organizer, a therapist, the TLC cameras, and the viewing public. One of the ways that people deal with their own deviance is by attempting to correct the undesirable attribute, Goffman observes. This is the main premise of hoarding and other lifestyle makeover shows. But it's not the only deviant, it's not only the deviants who are invested in this correction, but also other people in their lives. When we interact with others and sort them into categories in the way that Goffman describes, we feel discomfort with those whom we cannot easily plunk into the normal bucket. This discomfort is highlighted. May I just once again uh, recommend this book? Go and I don't even. You can check it out of your library if you want, but I recommend you go buy this motherfucking book. I will read every word in this book and have zero apology for it, and I will find the author and track her down and interview her. I want to know every single thing that she has ever researched on this subject, and I want to just dive off into this world. Once again, I have a show for this separately on its own. Uh, called Reality Issues. It's on all the podcasting platforms. Go look it up. But, like, seriously, like, this is... I could read about this and consume and 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 just analyze and extrapolate every single thing. Because this is not about reality television, okay? Well, you know that by now. You, you, you Not only have I said it 55 fucking times, but you definitely get that all of this is basically... It's like if you took a supercut of humanity... Bam. Slapped it on TV. Thousands of times. Over and over again. Different scenarios. Romance. Jobs. Homes. Appearances. Hairstyles. Makeup. Tattoos. Baking. Every aspect of cooking. Every comp- every single way that a human being can be competitive it has been put on television in a way inside of this style. Athletes trying to get drafted. Everything. Cheerleaders trying to get the job. Dallas Tech Cowboy cheerleaders. Anything. Everything. Lego building. On Fox, right? All of this. What this is, what reality television is. Let's come up with a different word for it. What this supercut of humanity is. What this... What we've done is we've taken everything that used to be ephemeral and then boiled it down into a show. And then now we've been, we've, this stuff has been around for long enough where we can now boil down what we've boiled down. And now we're like, we've come up with diesel, some different kind of petroleum that doesn't cost $5 a gallon. This is what we've come up with now. And I'm telling you that if you put this, this thought, this, these thought processes into the tank in your head and you go out there and you analyze whatever it is that you love and understand and enjoy and are passionate about and and just you know like the back of your hand and you talk about all the time with all the people that love talking about this stuff with you take all of that put that into a bag that's money that's your money if you want it I continue. It, uh, hmm. Let's just start this over. Another institution that defines and reinforces our notions about deviance is the law. The reality TV landscape, teeming with portrayals of the justice system, shows us its power to pinpoint and control deviance. One episode of the show, 
uh, lockdown, National Geographic 2007, for example, takes us into Oak Park Heights Correctional Facility in Minnesota. Oak Park houses, uh, quote, inmates so violent they can't be controlled elsewhere, according to the narrator, and program and the program highlights how the facility takes these men's bodies and renders them docile. In one scene, a prisoner getting a haircut is wearing multiple sets of shackles, is it accompanied by three guards. Quote, the heavy restraint system reduces the inmates' movement and ability to attack, we are told. Yet, while prisons do apply physical force to keep unruly bodies in line, they don't keep every inmate shackled at all times or aim guns around at them around the clock. Instead, as Foucault observes, tell me how to say his name right, if you want. You don't have to. Prisons, like all institutions, must use polymorphous techniques of power to curb potential deviance. As a quote. Prisons are constructed in specific ways to contain, control, and surveil their inmates. So let me say that again. Prisons are constructed in specific ways to contain, control, and surveil their inmates. Indeed, one of the primary purposes of these institutions is to separate criminal bodies from the rest of society. On lockdown, we learn that Oak Park Heights is a fortress-like compound with five-story walls and a master switch that can be flipped at any time to, quote, lock the entire complex down. The larger enclosure of the prison is also divided into multiple smaller areas through partitioning, as Foucault calls it, to control the flow of bodies through the structure. At Oak Park Heights, numbers are power, and the men are, quote, segregated into small groups for maximum control. The inmates are frisked, as they move from space to space. And only a few can have recreation time at once. Detailing the birth of the modern prison, Foucault explains that de- uh, specific places within the structure, quote, were defined to correspond and not only to the need to supervise, to break dangerous communications, but also to create a useful space. Lockdown takes us on a tour through these, quote, functional sites including the recreation area, the cafeteria, and the high-security segregation unit. Finally, Foucault observes that bodies are made docile through the use of timetables, schedules that establish rhythms or impose particular occupations, and regulate the cycle of repetition. It doesn't sound anything like the algorithm in the way that it interprets and delivers uh, content to us through our timelines, does it? It doesn't sound at all like... Uh, Social media? I don't know. I don't think I'm overthinking it there at all, actually. I don't even think that's like a stretch. Um, I'll continue. Oak Park Heights controls its inmates by shuttling them with precision to various locations throughout the day. Even their bodily functions are subject to specific rhythms. The showers may only be used once every 12 hours, and the toilets can only be flushed only twice per use. The prison, in sum, maintains order by controlling what people do with their bodies. Lockdown teaches us not only how prisons employ various techniques to curb deviance and to enforce conformity, but also how various other institutions use these same mechanisms. As Foucault points out, social institutions to keep our bodies in line are essentially from our... As Foucault points out, social institutions keep our bodies in line, essentially from the time we are old enough to respond to them. 
like school, for example. Elementary school students, for, for instance, eat lunch during a certain interval each day, travel from place to place in a straight line, sit in assigned seats, and must request permission to use the bathroom. Hospitals, the military, and even theme parks direct the movement of humans via similar mechanisms. Programs such as Lockdown demonstrate how we're all embedded within powerful institutions that control our activities and how they make our bodies docile, even without anyone putting their hands on us. And it's really fascinating if you think about like the line of the movie theater to the line at Disneyland, or the line at Disney World, the line at Epcot, the line at Animal Kingdom, the line at Universal, the line at Six Flags. Uh, those lines, we were prepared for those lines at school. And although people do make the joke about British people being the people you know, that are great at laying up at queuing, we are all great at lining up for queues. I mean, Americans don't like it so much, but we all line up. We're all good at it. We're trained to do it in school, and we know exactly what we're doing. Um, how about this? When we're on the road, in our cars, following everyone around, keeping in our mind thoughts and opinions and perceived notions about the world that would otherwise make us want to crash our cars into each other. But providing and following the rules, much like we would all hold hands as we're going down the hallway at our elementary school, as we're first beginning to learn how to work together, we just, you know, follow the, the rules. And usually the only time someone crashes is when something fucking crazy is going on or, you know, someone's not paying attention. But as long as we're all keeping all the rules in mind and everyone's actively doing what they're doing and the system functions. And we learn these things, you know, all the time in all situations. It's not just, you know, down in elementary school. But uh, anyone who's ever been to a convention, for example, you ever wait in the, waited in line at a convention? I know that I have. You know, I used to try to get into Hall H at San Diego Comic-Con. Probably five of the seven times I've been there. I waited in one of those lines that were two, three, four, five, six, ten, twelve hours. I remember that time. Uh, the time that I met, um, got a little photo with uh, the, the, the Rick and Morty dude. I can remember, never remember his name. Dan Harmon. When I ran into Dan Harmon, when I was waiting in that line to get into the, uh, what was it? The HBO was doing promotion for Westworld. It was between season one and two and that hype coming up to season two and he didn't know anything about it and the show was so exciting and he didn't know who was coming back or not and everything. The show could have gone anywhere. It was super exciting. And I remember sitting in the line, it was me and uh, this girl, Jem. We were in this group together. Uh, my friend Kelly got us all together, got us in this room. Who else was there with us? Doesn't matter. An amazing time. We were all sleeping, like five of us, to this like Motel 6 room and we, we all know, like quickly noticed that we were all kind of like obsessed with Westworld, but the two of us were like really obsessed with Westworld. And we thought, like, well, how cool would it be to get into this Westworld experience? Because we like learned about the whole thing and we were like waiting in line and we were like ready to go. And basically, we were waiting in line to have the chance to get a ticket to go to this thing where essentially, like, the very beginning of Westworld, where they show like someone walk through all the zones and like they were like going to live act you getting in costume and like getting like picking or selecting your weapon and actually like acting out Westworld like in real life with prop guns where like bang you're dead and the person falls over and like imagine as if the actors in Westworld you got to be the main character and do whatever and they just like improv acted everything that you did within the world of Westworld 
The promise of Westworld delivered in real life. That's what we were waiting in line for. No shit. And they actually did a little tour. I think they did like five or six different locations. It went to like, you know, L.A., you know, San Francisco, New York, D.C., I think some other places. They might have even done it like, uh, the, it was called the Westworld Experience. They might have done it like after. It'd be really cool for them to do it in a, in a theme park. But I think it was called, um, it was by, it was called Firefly, Firefly Productions or something like that. I remember I even like met the people who ran it and like talked to them on Twitter at the time and, and like congratulated them on the event because I had to go to like the venue where it was and check that out. There were like some celebrities there. I can't remember. Um, actually, Kanye. I think it was Kanye. I think Kanye went to that. Like while we were like waiting in the lobby to like see if we could have a chance to get in on the waiting list because like even after we didn't get a ticket. Anyway, the point is, I was willing to wait ten. 12 hours, at a minimum, this is what the point is. I was willing to wait 10 or 12 hours, right, for a chance to have an experience kind of like a TV show. What? Why? I don't even know if we would do that now. Unless to document it specifically, but like... We will line up for some motherfucking stuff. I mean, people would probably stay in there. I don't know how many people got out of line to go to the bathroom, but if you're staying there in line by yourself, you just better hope that there was someone near you. Just like, wait. I mean, like, literally withholding behavioral impulses. Completely fucking insane. Completely fucking insane. I mean, we loved it. Don't get me wrong. When you're that person, you're in that mood, you're there, you're in the zone, you're doing con time with your friends, you're just sitting there chatting, talking about every fucking comic book, every TV show, every episode, every character, everything that you ever wanted to talk about. That's your people. Those are your places. It's like having one brain. It's like having a thousand people. I swear if you... It's... Anyway, that's another topic for another story, but... Those lines... Being in a line and knowing how to perform in a line is something that humans will just, we'll get in a line for fucking anything. (laughs) And I'm not even saying that pejoratively or negatively or any other way. It's a completely neutral thing. I'm just saying, God damn it. We will get in some motherfucking lines. Why do we love bad boys? Lockdown is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to reality programs focused on the justice system. Some of these shows have had remarkable staying power. Before it moved to Lifetime, America's Most Wanted, Fox, 1988 to 2011, 2021 to present, Lifetime, 2011 to 2012, which showed crime reenactments and provided information about at-large fugitives, was the longest-running show on the Fox network. The small claims court show Judge Judy, CBS 1996 to present, has been on the air for about a quarter century. Cops, on television for more than three decades, was the longest-running primetime show in the United States when it was canceled. True crimes programs such as Tiger King, Netflix 2020, and podcasts such as Serial, WBEZ, 2014 to present, are immensely popular. Over inscripted TV land, Law and Order ran for 20 years, NBC 1990 to 2010, with one of its spinoffs, Law and Order SVU, enduring for even longer than the original, NBC 1999 to present. We like to consume media about these topics. Why? And what does that say about us? Which is funny, because I hadn't actually read this chapter, but we were already talking about talking about Law and Order um, on the Reality Issues podcast, because we were considering the fact that shows that are in fact about things that are real may in fact 
be reality shows if you just really think it out a little bit. And you really have to think about it less and less as the deviance becomes the norm. You're welcome. One thing it tells us, us enjoying all these things about these specific topics, one thing that it tells us is simply that the justice system is a large part of our lives. The U.S. houses one quarter of all inmates in the world, even though we're only 5% of the global population. We incarcerate more people per capita than any other country. Currently, nearly 2.3 million people are being held within our criminal justice system. This system has also become a more a part of our lives in recent years. The number of people in U.S. prisons and jails has increased 500% over the last four decades. In fact, today the number of people in prison for drug offenses alone exceeds the total number of people who were locked away for any crime in 1980. It's incredible. Just incredible in the very literal definition of the word. And the number of people embroiled in the criminal justice system is much higher if one considers not just current inmates, but also those on parole or probation. In 2015, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, about 1 in 37 adults in the U.S. fell into this category. Seems like a lot. But I'm not an expert. A lot of us are moving through the legal system at any given time, and we have a lot of crime and punishment type shows. Entire networks such as Court TV and Investigation Discovery are built around our systems of justice. We're called for jury duty, pulled over for speeding, and stopped at checkpoints. We file police reports when we have fender benders. So perhaps there are so many reality shows about the law for the same reason there are so many about families. It's a major social institution in which nearly all of us participate to varying degrees. Some of the elements of reality TV that appeal to us in general are also relatively pronounced in these types of shows... The sociologist Charles Tilley has argued that human minds respond particularly well to, quote, standard stories or sequential explanatory accounts of self-motivated human action. Although I would argue that also some of our favorites are some of the things that are so abstract that, well, no. Even the abstract is usually nestled and wrapped in a little chronological, hmm, it's meant to be unwrapped chronologically. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. I'll continue. Standard stories are central to our lives, and the underpinning of fables, sitcoms, plays, novels, and even the narratives that juries piece together during deliberation. Similarly, law-oriented reality programs often provide clear heroes and villains, straightforward and sequential narrative structures, and moral reductionism. For instance, broad cultural notions about normalcy and deviance and about gender and crim uh, criminality were distilled in the cop's theme song, which asked, bad boys, bad boys, what are you going to do? Although it's not the cop's theme song, it is actually a song. Uh, but it, it was co-opted as the theme song. Uh, perhaps we find succor in being these bad boys and seeing these bad boys identified, contained, and brought to justice. Yes, I, I would agree with the, uh, well, the, the idea, the concept. Yes. And I'm sure you would as well. It's a pretty basic concept that is the reason why we're watching. We're not watching for no reason. We're watching for a reason. And the reason is to 
uh, see the bad boys identified, contained, and brought to justice. Assuming that, you know, I mean, that's making the assumption that, um, I don't even want to make the assumption that we aren't one of the bad boys. We are one of the bad boys. We want to feel like we're not one of the bad boys. We want to see ourselves, the bad boy, the projection of the bad boy of us that we want, the cool part of ourselves. We want to see that in danger on TV. In that uh, thought process, I say that create fictional versions of cops. Why not? No, even better. Create fictional versions of reality shows even better than the original ones. You don't have to portray them as real reality shows. Create fictional. I'm just writing this down. Writing this down. Create. Creating. Creating. A fictional Reality show? Question mark? Creating a fictional reality show with or without context. Which is better? And if you want the answer to, if you want me to discuss that question with another person, you can listen to the other podcast because I'm definitely going to follow that one up now. Um, All right. I love blowing up all of that. Oh, so perhaps there are so many reality shows about the law for the same reason there's so many about families. It's a major social... Some of the elements of reality TV appeal to us in general are also relatively pronounced in these types of shows. The sociologist Charles Chilliot argues that human minds respond particularly well to serious stories. Similarly, law-oriented reality programs often provide clear heroes and build in straightforward and sequential story narratives and moral reductionism. For instance, broad cultural notions about normalcy and deviance and about gender and criminality were distilled in the cop's theme song, which asked, bad boys, bad boys, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when they come for you? Perhaps find sucker and being these bad boys enough I contain the brought to justice. There we are. The standard stories on Justice TV also unfold in ways that reinforce narratives about race, class, and gender that are familiar and cozy when Patricia Hill Collins wrote about controlling images she specifically connected these images to black men's perceived criminality and hypersexuality and their overrepresentation in the prison populate population while the justice system touches most of us in some way poor communities and communities of color are considerably more policed and involvement in the system is highly patterned by race black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men and hispanic men are more than twice as likely to be incarcerated as non-Hispanic white men. In 11 U.S. states, at least one in 20 black men is behind bars. While one might argue that perhaps people of different races commit crimes at different rates, multiple studies have shown that even while rates of criminality are similar, white people are less likely to come under the auspices of the law. And when convictions occur, as discussed, sentencing can also differ by race. These types of programs not only display our ideas about race and deviance, but also help to perpetuate them. It seems unlikely that most people who watched cops were social science nerds like me, riveted and repulsed by what they, the show had to teach us about broad inequalities. Rather, they, turned in, they tuned in to watch a clash between two groups, the police, who are generally portrayed positively, and the suspected perps, who are generally not. On Live PD, the underlying standard story was even more nakedly visible. 
In each episode, footage from the patrols were interspersed with cuts to a studio where we watched the commentators, most of whom had worked in law enforcement themselves, respond to the action. In this way, the show often resembled a sporting event where the viewer was clearly meant to root for the cops. On one episode, for instance, while an officer is questioning and cuffing a suspect, the main commentator describes how that officer had previously been shot in the line of duty. Quote, she is a real hero. Tellingly, research suggests that viewing crime-related reality programming improves white people's, and specifically white people's, attitudes towards police. Not all of the perps on cops are men of color. The drug-addled poor white person is also a regular character, but there's a reason these standard stories about heroes and villains seem to resonate more with white audiences who more, may more comfortably identify with the law enforcement figures than with the stereotypical criminals. Dark skin male, and lower class. Townspeople with torches. So, law and order programs may resonate with us strongly because they, like other reality TV shows, reinforce our comfortable national narratives about race, gender, class, respectability, and how bodies should be organized and contained. But what about it is deviance and deviance in particular that engages our interest? While Goffman suggests that we may try to fix deviants in order to allay our own discomfort with them, and while this is, is certainly true, we also benefit from their ex- existence. Recall that a fundamental puzzle for Emile Durkheim was social cohesion. What's to prevent all of society's self-interested, autonomous individuals from scurrying off into their own directions and refusing to cooperate with one another? For Durkheim, society was a giant, complex organism with different parts, each component serving a different societal function. Looking through the lens of this theory, we might be inclined to interpret deviance as something dysfunctional, an indicator that the organism is sick. But as Durkheim points out, crime isn't just something that happens when a society needs a tune-up. On the contrary, it's a feature of every society. This is curious, he ventures, since humans have been developing mechanisms to eliminate deviance throughout history. Theoretically, we shouldn't have gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> Theoretically, we should have gotten pretty good at it by now. And again, he doesn't think that deviance persists just because there will always be people naturally predisposed to it, though he does, doesn't deny this. Rather, he argues that we need deviance in a way. The presence of deviance doesn't mean that society is breaking down. It means it is working correctly. And I would agree. Social... uh, hmm. No, that's too academic out of my own quadrant. I would say this. From the lowbrow academic perspective, I would say the purpose of deviance, um, and this is, I do want to dive into this more, and this is deviance with a C, um, deviance from the norm. The purpose of it existing in that it only exists in the way that it's measured, it only exists from the perspective of rules existing. If you looked at it, human behavior in the abstract, if you looked at all of this as raw data, raw data if you look at all this as raw data as opposed to um putting it with inside a box with the framework labeling all the segments of it and stuff i would say this 
Deviance exists in society um, because it is encouraged for a number of reasons. I would say it exists in all societies because it's much more complicated than seeing society needs. It's artists, it's creators, it's crazy people who are permitted to say crazy things. People, I will say this. Here's what it is. Deviance on its face is people who are different, who have privilege to say different. That is all that it is. And society needs that to self-regulate certain things within its society, its uh, uh, construct, within its framework. The gears need to be oiled with a little bit of deviance. If you looked at society as a mathematical concept, it needs to be more robust. It needs to be robustly tested from all directions. Um, now, whether that's society's greater brain coming up with little thoughts and moments to um, eject into certain people and push out there to balance the, the forces that be. Who knows? But uh, I propose that deviance is one of the most important things in our society. And it's probably it's worth preserving. Although it cannot be contained or controlled, it will try to be contained and controlled, but it will always choose its own path. All right. Let me continue. For Durkheim, deviance shores up our notions of what's normal and, in doing so, reinforces our social cohesiveness. Like townspeople in an old horror film chasing after a monster with their torches, we are bonded in our collective rejection of ones who do not belong. This has always happened, Durkheim suggests, and will always happen. In fact, if we were a society of saints, we would simply redraw the boundaries of acceptability so that some of our members still might be cast as deviant. Fucking exactly. And that's how, in every single social group, even in the groups that are made of perfect people, you will always have the deviance within the group and those things will become friction and those things will tear the group apart. Entropy continues. Entropy of social groups exists just as much as entropy in any other part of society. That's why you can never bet on a treaty lasting forever. That's why you can never bet on an alliance lasting forever. That's why you can never bet on any kind of connection between groups lasting forever. You can hope, you can build those connections, you can keep building them up, but one day, something's going to happen. Entropy happens. Entropy happens everywhere else in the world, and if you look at society as a system, which definitely is, it's observable as a system, I'll say that. It needs its deviance. Why are we pulled toward reality programs with cushion eaters, gypsies, bar brawlers, and killers? Because we're drawn to the, skept the spectacle of deviance, and we always have been. That's the premise behind the freak show, a form of entertainment that arose in the colonial period, was popular in the 19th century, and continues even today. Footnote 45. But I would add... 
one simply needs to log on to twitter.com and follow any number of people and uh you can still view that freak show today and today it's a freak show of words so we've removed well i don't know images too but largely i would say the freak show exists in an evolved form. It exists in its pure form as well, and it exists in the form and on its face. But it also exists in the form of words. And, and uh, language deviance, I would say, is like the largest thing. But also, the deviance exists as memes, good and bad, uh, simply as. Uh, it exists as a common owl. That's not that word. It exists as a communal language form that grows over time between a large group of people that no one is really intentionally trying to change, but more and more as larger groups of people go and communicate into the ether, we gain a common, common? Yeah. We gain a shared voice. And I wonder what that means one day when we all have, uh, 20 years from now, what does our shared voice sound like? What does my shared voice sound like? What does my voice sound like now? In the sense of, how much is my voice the shared voice? I would, I would bet. I would bet that I spend more time thinking about my shared voice. I rewrite a lot of tweets. I care a lot about the shared voice. And I care a lot about curating and maintaining the shared voice. And I care a lot about where the shared voice goes. And I know that a lot of other people do too. And it's not just me. I don't think it's just me. Um, But that's been a secret mission of mine for the last 10 years or more, 14 years. Happy birthday to me. I've been on Twitter for over 14 years. But a secret mission of mine has, has, has been to, to maintain and support the, and cultivate our growing vocabulary. Um, I don't know if anyone else is out there doing it. Probably. It's not like I've been like writing down lists of words, but it's a thing that exists in my brain for absolutely goddamn certain. Um, we see shades of today on unscripted TV. Oh, we see shades of the freak show today on an unscripted TV where deviant bodies are presented to us as curiosities. The conjoined twins on Abby and Brittany, TLC, 2012. The gushes of facial pus on Dr. Pimple Popper. And the array of programs starring little people. These include, but are not limited to, Little Chocolatiers, TLC, 2009 to 2010. The Little Couple, TLC, 2009 to present. Little People, Big World, TLC, 2006 to present. Little Women, Atlanta, Lifetime, 2016 to present. Little Women, Dallas, Lifetime, 2016 to 2017. Little Women, LA, Lifetime, 2014 to present. Little Women, New York, Lifetime, 2015 to 2016. And Our Little Family, TLC, 2015. But reality programs also allow us to rubberneck at a wide range of human deviance beyond the physical body. As we know, many viewers tune in for the enjoyment of discussing the action with others. When we watch to make points of contact with other people, reality TV serves as a communal function. Our water cooler conversations about hoarding, buried alive, may seem like frivolous chit-chat, and we might not want to lend them much social weight. Aha! 
But these moments of shared culture accumulate and contribute to our social cohesiveness. Our viewing, then, works on dual levels that are seemingly paradoxical. We gravitate toward reality stars because we identify with them, but they also reinforce our social solidarity when we collectively reject them. Aha! And collective rejection is an extremely powerful force. And that is what I was trying to think of on the first ep- on the episode zero of the reality issues. Um, to build social cohesiveness, to feel like more part of the group, when you reject things, yes, and they go right into it. Boom! I fucking love this book. Look at this. I swear to God, I'm only reading this book with you. Uh, a little bit more here and there, but I haven't read this chapter at all. This is incredible. This is exactly what I was just talking about on, uh, on reality issues. Our viewing then works on dual levels that, uh, that are seemingly paradoxical. We gravitate towards reality stars because we identify with them, but they also reinforce our social solidarity when we collectively reject them. And being part of a group that collectively rejects things is fun in quotes. It feels good. It is fun. It works as an entertainment, um, a form of entertainment. The, the concept in your head that you could potentially discuss this in a group of people laughing at, you know, throwing the, the tomatoes at the person in the stocks, you know, that's you at the water cooler as you talk about the Kardashians being less than an incredible example of America and avatars of our world um, that we should look at as neutral people in this conversation. Um, some viewers lean and some programs lend themselves more toward the former or toward the latter. One fan of Keeping Up with the Kardashians might identify with Kylie. <laughs> identify with Chloe. A Chloe who wishes she was a Kim, by the way. While another enjoys gossiping about ever-changing topography of her face. For many of us, it's a mix. For me, uh, I enjoy everything and want to consume and know everything. But I consume it and enjoy it in all the ways that I can. As many ways as I can in a growing list of ways. And I want to enjoy and consume everything in as many ways as I can to experience everything that life has to offer. And many reality TV participants like the Kardashian-Jenners nestle in a space between deviant and acceptable. They're rarely just one or another, and neither are we. These characters are versions of ourselves who go too far. Through our viewing, we are able to draw and redraw the boundary between acceptable and unacceptable and place ourselves on the correct side. But perhaps we're so invested in curating the boundary precisely because we know it's so messy and unstable. As sociologists have long observed, few of us can say we've never engaged in devious. Deviance. Edwin Lamert, for example, distinguished between primary deviance, which is practiced by people who are basically conformists, and secondary deviance, which wherein... The deviance is persistent, with a negative label applied to the doer who often internalizes it. In the case of primary deviance, we often explain away the behavior as being situational, or as functions of a socially acceptable role. Drinking to excess while in college is one classic example, but I would also say drinking to excess, taking drugs, making that your image, using substances, etc., while being a a musical performer, creator, writer, etc., from, you know... Juice World to Hemingway, um, we're talking about the same thing here. Indeed, most of us engage in deviance at some point or another, if only because some situations present a deviance catch-22. Driving at least a few miles above the speed limit on a major highway, for instance, is commonplace and expected, but also illegal, 
We're deviant if we perform this act and deviant if we don't. Many of us have messy homes. Many of us have technically violated the law. And while we don't all binge on couch cushions, some of us may have been known to polish off a whole sleeve of fudge-striped cookies in one sitting, hypothetically. Or an eighth of weed. Or a bottle of liquor. Or a four of tall boys. Or a twelve of regular boys. <laughs> uh, although gorgeous girls may not drop out of school to cook, clean, and get married... We, like Priscilla, also live in a culture where women are still the primary caretakers of children and do a disproportionate amount of domestic work. As we've seen throughout this book, reality TV confronts us with an array of peculiarities that are simultaneously anathema and known to us in mutated form. Just as these shows enable us to map out the train of normalcy, they also caution us against making such clear-cut distinctions. Reality stars are not just deviant, and neither are we. But they are deviant, and so are we. They remind us that deviance exists on a spectrum, and that our understanding of what is acceptance and accept <laughs> they remind us that our devious deviance exists on a spectrum, that our understanding of what is acceptable changes across social context. This concept applies to our viewing of reality shows as well. Is watching reality TV a deviant act? Yes and no. As we've seen, one of the contradictions of the genre is that it's both highly popular and somewhat taboo. Recall the study that found that people have a negative view of the impact of reality TV. <clears throat> Although 77% of respondents said that they watched at least one reality show from a list included in the survey, sometimes or frequently, the respondents' viewing of these shows belies their disdain for the genre. The researchers concluded that the, repu the reputation of reality programming does not appear to have substantially interfered with the viewing behavior. What, uh, what uh, she's trying to demonstrate there is that statistically, she can statistically proved through a study-based thing that reality shows are in fact a guilty pleasure. That while 77% of people have watched and enjoyed at least one reality show, they generally find the genre itself unacceptable or, i.e., in this uh, situation deviant. Why? Why? I answer. Why? Because people don't understand that reality television is many, many, many different things. It's not even really a genre. It's, it's, it, it is a form of entertainment. Even beyond that, it's not even just that. It's literally a reflected version of our world on television, a world that some people are more commonly familiar with and some people aren't. Like, do I know everything about the world of toddlers and tiaras? No. If I watched it, maybe I would. Would I know anything about it beforehand? No. If I knew something about that world in context going into it beforehand, watching the show, I would then have a different perspective than if I just watched it with no perspective going in, then if I just had a different then if I had just watched a little bit of a different show about the same world going into that show then. These are all very important things to take into mind when considering how someone views a reality television show in the 15 million different ways that they can look at it thereby leaving room for misperceiving why someone else would watch a show or through lack of, I don't want to say lack of self-confidence because that portrays this as a singular person issue, but I would say that uh, lack of feeling confident personally with expressing your preference for the world that is very specific uh, of reality television and picking the one out of 1,500 shows 
uh, that is yours, and then defending it, not everyone's going to be feeling uh, confident about defending that specific thing, especially if the deviant in this case is you because you are a 34, 35-year-old man who enjoys watching every episode of the Kardashian episode, show and until 33 or 34 didn't even know that you could like watch this or you know in the context of the social construct, let's say, would allow yourself to then watch and enjoy a show like that in the first place. I would say that um, this general concept if there is a way that i could help inform the country no the world at large about this concept it's like i feel like if the world could consume and understand that reality television the news sports virtually anything that portrays realistic scenarios is not only produced and portrayed and manufactured to look a certain way to be acceptable to a large viewership. It is not the perspective of a singular person or a group of people, or if it is, it's for, it's with the intention of being for a group of people. If you've ended up seeing it, generally speaking, it was designed for a group of people. Maybe you included, but it been designed for groups of people. Uh, but that changes everything. And thus, creating reality television uh, itself by creating narrow categories for things to become really enthused about people have deemed them either ours yours mine this is for me this is for you this is for her this is for him this is for them this is for all the people that are this young this is for all the people that are this old and by defining all these categories and putting all our stories in certain buckets and by having a line between true crime and a line between reality and having a line between uh, music shows and a line between talent shows and a line between what's on talent shows and a line between what's letting people become successful at a certain route. Is it this show? Is it that show? Is it, do I need to be an ink master to be a talent, talented, uh, uh, tattoo artist? Do I need to be on, uh, you know, one of the special effect makeup shows like, like skin art or something like that? Like, do I need to be on those shows to then succeed? Or, do I need to like watch that show because my entire industry pays attention to that show and so I have to be part of the viewership numbers and everyone around me has to be part of the viewership numbers by osmosis because I've given off that perception. These are all things that we should uh, think about on our own. Call on the show 505-557-7932. I check that like once a month. It's my old New Mexico number. You can call that anytime. Text it if you want. Actually, I would prefer if you text it. Then I can read your text aloud in my beautiful voice. Crap hierarchy. Reality stars are not just a deviant, and neither... <laughs> reality stars are not just deviant, and neither are we. But they are deviant, and so are we. Is watching TV a deviant act? Yes and no. As we've seen, one of the contradictions of the genre that is both highly popular and somewhat taboo. Recall the study that found that people have a negative view of the impact of reality TV. Although 77% of respondents said they had watched at least one reality show in the list included in the survey, sometimes or frequently, the respondents' viewing of these shows belies their disdain for the genre. 
The researchers concluded, as the reputation of reality programming does not appear to have substantially interfered with their viewing behavior. The other thing is that people are willing to talk shit about something that they like, which I think is a very, very interesting uh, thing to study here. I think that that is a really big aspect of what sociologically, psychologically, as a group, we were all um, doing and affecting and using our words for in the 90s and early 2000s, especially the mid-2000s, I would say. People were really, really focused on using, like, talking about things they didn't like because either throughout the 2000s I'll say this people were really into liking things like quote unquote ironically which is how I would have positioned myself liking the Kardashians until I watched the Kardashians fascinating really watching that show allowed me to say that I liked that show I mean how can you not look that alone to me makes it sociological evidence of something very large. But as guilty pleasures go, some reality programs seem a little bit guiltier than others. At the apex of legitimacy are the cooking and home decor programs that pervade waiting rooms across America. When a new mom friend, for instance, confessed her love for Chip and Joanna Gaines, home remodeling show Fixer Upper, HGTV, 2013 to 2018, I couldn't help wondering if she would have been as candid about an affinity for Snooki and JWoww. Recall that a major distinction between documentaries and reality television is that the former is educational in nature, while the latter is intended mainly to entertain. But there is no slippage between these categories, as documentaries also seek to entertain. There is slippage between these categories, as documentaries also seek to entertain, and some reality shows, at least nominally, attempt to educate. The term entertainment, applying to the children's reality, sh- uh, the children's shows amuse and also teach, highlights this false dichotomy, which is why I label my podcast as such. Learning. Podcast. Learning podcast. Not a comedy podcast. It's not comedy. If it was comedy, I would mean all this ironically. I would be laughing more. I would think that this is funny. I would be stopping reading this book halfway in between if I didn't think I was educating you or enlightening you or I didn't have the confidence to think that I could educate you or enlighten you the listener or the viewer in this case the reality show viewer if I didn't think that I had the ability to affect change then why the fuck would I even do a podcast Recall that a major distinction between documentaries and reality television is that the former is educational in nature, while the latter is intended merely to entertain. But there is slippage between these categories, as documentaries also seek to entertain, and some reality shows, at least nominally, attempt to educate. And I would say this. Uh, A great one that crosses the line between documentary and reality series is Catfish. In fact, I would say Catfish is the ultimate one because Catfish is made to entertain absolutely. Oh, man, you got Cammy on there. You got Neve. Um, and they're just st- stirring up trouble but solving it at the same time. They're creating the trouble. Well, they're curating the trouble back to a simmer and then taking it down a notch and hopefully solving something. Maybe some people find some love in between. But that, there is no more show that is literally the edutainment. I mean, listen. That show, you could put it on, like, I don't know, PBS, quite honestly, for, like, what it 
tries to achieve. That is edutainment, the show. And I would say that my podcast and and, and reality issues also um, that I share with Kathy, I would say, is also edutainment. So I'm I'm, I'm happy to bring edutainment back. Uh, It's not just for shareware in the 90s. I'm I'm bringing it back to today. Um, I'm proud to, to be doing this with someone else as well. And I hope that you out there one day, if you would like to join this um, investigation into our world of reality um, and everything that that means, uh, you know, send me an email, as they say. Um, I have been getting some emails, which is, is nice to see. You know, hit up the inbox. Still. It seems the more closely TV resembles its documentary ancestors, that is, the more overtly it seems to teach us, the more it takes on the halo of legitimacy. One study of college students found that they distinguished between good and bad reality TV. The former label belonged to programs that give the viewer useful ideas or advice, give the people a second chance, are entertaining or funny, and can be applied to the viewer's actual life. One facet of a show like Bad Girls Club that catapults it into the ratchet zone, which I don't, I, I, we, they, she did define the term in, in the previous episode when I read this last, I just, I just don't feel, I just don't feel great about that definition zone, is that it points to participants' ill behaviors, because it, the only reason is because I, I feel like ratchet isn't, um, it, it isn't, there is a word that exists I don't know what the answer is that is more easily encapsulatable um, and uh, just captures that concept in a permanent uh, scholastic academic nature that just really like nails it. Although Ratchet does fit in for now to tell you what it means. So um I don't know. I feel like we're at like the ground floor of uh, an entire like the break off of sociology and, and the the uh, break off a new field here. Like this is this is we're creating a new field like overnight. Um, anyway. One facet of a show like Bad Girls Club that catapults into the ratchet zone is that it points to its participants ill behaviors, but does not particularly focus on its improvement. Uh, other research similarly uh, suggests that viewers do not evaluate all reality TV equally, but makes assessments about the relative value of various subgenres. Subgenre. As one respondent told the British communications researcher Annette Hill, when it comes to reality TV, there is crap I would never watch, crap I might watch, and then crap I would definitely watch. Still, it's crap. Even if the acceptability of these programs varies, there is a reason people refer to the genre writ large as guilty pleasure of TV. We reserve that label for a particular range of cultural pursuits. We likely wouldn't call attending a Shakespearean play or reading Proust a guilty pleasure. So why are we guilty about this? There are a variety of possible answers to the question. Perhaps the most obvious is that it's non-redeeming, aside from the occasional educational nugget. We don't, quote, get anything from these programs, yet professional sports don't have any intellectual value either, and we don't regularly refer to them as guilty pleasures. There are other potential reasons for our disdain for reality TV, because it's populated by real people behaving in low-class ways, and it's important for us to keep taste hierarchies intact, because, unlike sports, it's a genre associated with more uh, with female viewership than with male. Aha. Now we're getting into the meat. 
And we tend to devalue cultural products geared toward women, e.g. chick flicks and chick lit. Something else that I've been trying to expose myself to more and more often mentally to eliminate the barriers between those things. I want literature. Like, I dream of, in Hollywood, if you're listening, hello. I'm a 35-year-old man who wishes nothing more than my life for not only for me to write. This is something that I want. I want this deeply. I want to write a rom-com. I do. I want that to be my first film. If I ever make a Hollywood film, I want it to be a rom-com. I guarantee you it will be the best one yet made. But it will open the door for hundreds of new directors to come in and make that kind of rom-com. All kinds of people. But you just need one. I can do this. I can make this rom-com. I can open the door. And then every other kind of person can make a rom-com. We don't have to associate the rom-com with being by, uh, by and for a female audience. Or for any specific audience. The romantic comedy is a incredible art form. And it is 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 might as well just be sleeping in the basement. Why? Because everyone's afraid to touch it because everyone thinks relationship films have to be a certain thing. Now I haven't seen Licorice Pizza yet. Seems like that was a piece of like what uh, people wanted to come back as. I don't know about that necessarily. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on it. But I, I feel like uh, the possibilities for cinema, the reason that cinema is dying, the reason that Marvel films are like the last thing that make movie money anymore in movie theaters is because nobody is making the films for today. The rom-com can come back. We don't need to make rom-coms for female audiences. We can, uh, 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 anyone, anyone can make a rom-com for any audience. And they could make the best one yet. They could still do it. And the only reason it hasn't happened is because not enough people are assuming that they can. They aren't either imagining that they can write it because they are who they are and have the profile that they have or have the, the history that they have and they can't write it. Steven Spielberg could go make the best uh, uh, romantic comedy that's ever been made tomorrow. Will he? No. Will he ever even think about it? No. Why? Why? He could create a new franchise of romantic comedies. He could he, Steven Spielberg tomorrow with his access could create the next franchise of $150 million, $200 million uh, budget talking three, $400 million box office sci-fi rom-com done. All audiences. Boom. Done. He'll executive produce. He'll pick the perfect director, script, kick it out the door. Done. He could. He won't. Why? Doesn't think it's possible. Doesn't even entertain the thought. That's why we need new people in Hollywood. And you know that's all possible. Is it completely fucking possible? All it takes is someone going like, hmm, yeah, hmm. I mean, thus, though, extending the point to the fact that you could probably do that literally anything like that in Hollywood with the right, with the right nod. But, I mean, the, the, my point about rom-coms as a genre stands, and it goes to along exactly with what um, Danielle J. Lindemann is saying. Let me find one more time to locate. Uh, there we go. 
Or maybe because we just like to feel guilty about things. Hmm. Yes, every Catholic knows about that. Or a propensity that perhaps illuminates our country's charred but intact religious foundation. Not to mention, reality TV arguably does have value. In this very book, we've toured the genre like a museum, stopping to peer at its various artifacts, examining the things with the, and what they do for us and the various facets of our culture that they reveal. But a large reason we feel this way about reality TV likely has to do with the types of people who populate these worlds. Even if we're gathering our torches as we tune in to The Bachelor, we may still feel contaminated by the monster's stigma. Athletes, conversely, are doing something socially laudable. When we watch sports, wearing our favorite players' jerseys, and bonding with others in our support for our teams, we don't become implicated in unacceptable behavior. There's a stink to reality TV that's never quite worn off, no matter how many people watch or how, many pe- how the genre becomes a part of contemporary life. And maybe we're reticent to admit that we watch these shows because we think the participants' behavior reflects on us. And maybe because we know that it does. Cracking the locks. Page 253, if you're following along at this point. I might as well do the audiobook of this thing. The annotated my version. Maybe this is how uh, on reality issues we do uh, our version of Mystery Science Theatering things. Unscripted programming cracks the locks and thrusts open the places in ourselves that we keep deep hidden, both individually and as a society. One way it does this is by showing us the people who run amok of our norms, why they do that, and how we attempt to yank them back into the fold. It reveals the polymorphous techniques we use to curb deviance via loved ones, individual experts, and behemoth institutions. It teaches us... (laughs) It teaches us whom we view as legitimate, but also how those views are fundamentally shaped by our culture. And it reveals that these views, while socially constructed, are still real in the sense that they are vital to our lives, impacting how we distribute societal power, treat others, and experience the world ourselves. These programs offer us things and people ostensibly in need of fixing, from kitchen islands to inmates, but they also give us, they also show us people who push back against society's norms. The genre shows us how conservative we remain, illuminating the social repercussions for stepping out of line. But on the flip side of that, it highlights humanity's heterogeneity. And, to be fair, reality TV does not try to fix us all. Uh, And, to be fair, reality TV doesn't try to fix us all. Nor does it try to. I think I get what they're saying. Anyway, uh, interesting wording. On Nailed It, Netflix 2018 to present, for instance, which humorously features everyday people attempting to recreate uh, Baker's masterpieces, there's an exuberance about failure, a sense that we're all laughing together at our inability to measure up. By presenting caricatures of our own oddities, these programs demonstrate how society sets parameters for normalcy and how we all move in and around those barriers, which are changeable and nuanced. 
Ultimately, the genre exposes the moneyness of distinctions that we may perceive as crisp and clean. The boundaries that we draw between the normal and the freaky aren't real in any universal sense, and the monsters we reject are not as different from us as we'd like to believe. We're all just a bunch of fridge stripe co- <laughs> We're all just a bunch of fudge stripe cookies away from being in the wrong category. How motherfucking true. Reality TV is both a genuinely goody and nutritional bite, nestling in the crook between normalcy and deviance, just like its participants and just like us. And while the freaky undercurrent of reality programming remains strong, reality stars are more than just sideshow. Some of them are also our main attractions. They're flashpoints for our desires, behaviors, peculiarities, and for a while, one was running our country. Hmm. And then there's a very long conclusion, which I may cover at a later date. But for now, I do intend to close it on a little bit of a different note. Let me look at the clock. Two and one half hours. You are a lucky duck. That is way more time than I expected to go today. It must be 5.06. It is. And I'll be recording another podcast at around 7 o'clock p.m. That is Reality Issues, episode one. It should be out tomorrow, probably. I bet. Both of these will probably come out tomorrow. I bet. Um, and let's see. What else is going on before then? I don't know. But do all of those things I mentioned, call 505-557-7932 if you made it all the way to the end of the podcast. Just let me know if you did. Just text. Just say if you did. Doesn't matter. Just want to know. Which is better? Creating a fictional reality show or um, creating a reality show which you let people believe is real? So, let the facade up or let the facade down, which would be more fun and more creatively interesting for the audience, thereby creating more viewership. We will decide that uh, together on Reality Issues Episode 1. And let's see. Here it is. The final thing for today. Let me put this book away and not knock over something. In fact, I'm going to get a drink. You're going to hear me get a drink. I'm getting up. You stuck with me for two and a half hours. You're going to stick with me for a little bit more. I have zero, zero, zero doubt of that. Okay. One sec. You're going to hang here. You are. I know you are. Here. Actually, I'll just do a little bit of uh, this. This is how we...
has all the tech you would ever want. 100% electric, available two-way charging capability, pixel-inspired light clusters. Plus, with a spacious, flexible interior, it's fully electric inside and out. Introducing the first ever Hyundai Ioniq 5. Extremely limited availability, available in select states only. Contact your Hyundai dealer for availability details. Warner Brothers Pictures and J.K. Rowling invite you to return to the magic. Discover the secrets before Harry Potter in Fantastic Beasts. The secrets of Dumbledore. Newt Scamander. Together with a team of unlikely characters, make up Dumbledore's first army. Watch as they are tasked to take on the most dangerous wizard, Grindelwald. It's a battle of good versus evil. This April, uncover the secrets that can save the world. Starring Eddie Redmayne and Jude Law. Only in theaters April 15th. Experience in IMAX. Rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Check this out, Southwest Florida. We're happy to announce you can still get the original MSRP for your trade-in, but only at Naples Nissan. If your trade-in is a 2013 or newer with less than 120,000 miles on it, regardless of brand or where you bought it, Naples Nissan will pay you the full original base MSRP for it so you can drive home in a brand new Nissan. Yes, that means whatever your car was worth when it was new, even if you didn't buy it new, that's exactly what it will be worth right now. But only here at Naples Nissan. We've got hundreds of new and like-new low-mileage pre-owned vehicles to choose from. Now is the time for you to make that upgrade. To get full details on how you can get the full original base MSRP for your trade-in, come see us at Naples Nissan here on Pine Ridge Road or visit NaplesNissan.com today. Offers on select models with approved credit and cannot hmm. be combined. It's time to hop on over to Sounds like a classic, uh, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Sounds like a classic bait and switch to me, but I'm no expert. Nor am I a legally binding podcast. Or a legally binding anything. Okay. So before I send you off, I just want to read this... uh Hold on. I know I got you this long. All right. Let's turn it up. There we go. Okay. It's from the New York Times. Sunday, December 26th, 2021. in the culture section a murky path from tiktok stardom okay you're famous on the app but can that viral rocket ship hit cultural escape velocity by john carmancia before charlie d'amelio became the most popular creator on tiktok she currently has 132 million followers she danced on, and I think it's like under 50 now. She danced on the competitive contemporary dance circuit in the Northeast, the sorts of theatrical styles you might know from So You Think You Can Dance. Once she began posting to TikTok in 2019, and especially after her videos began taking off, and her family moved to Los Angeles to support the viral dreams of her and her older sister, Dixie, 56 million followers, that sort of dance became an afterthought, a relic from an old life. The D'Amelios made a leap from the phone screen to the small screen this year with a Hulu docu-series, The D'Amelio Show, which captures 
in sometimes excruciating detail the thrills and the wages of TikTok success. Its most curious subplot about Charlie's side quest to return, at least temporarily, to her pre-capitalist self, squeezing in time to work with a coach to relearn what those old dancers require of her body, and pushing herself to remaster them. For Charlie, TikTok stardom is a rocket ship. Excuse me. For Charlie, TikTok stardom is a rocket ship, and potentially a ceiling too. The past year or so has been a kind of a testing ground for the app's biggest creators. The Emilio sisters, Noah Beck, 32 million followers. Chase Hudson, 32 million followers. Addison Ray, 86 million followers. And others might do next, um, either voluntarily or enthusiastically, or simply to satisfy the insatiable maw of demand that their sheer existence uh, occasions. And I might add, um, this makes me think very deeply of previously discussed uh, boy child actor star, uh, reality online media YouTube TikTok child who plays with toys online, Ryan. Ryan Kaji. Um, it's actually really, really makes me think of that. Um, it's been a mixed bag, a chaotic blend of behind-the-scenes vulnerability, eager-to-please willingness, bro impudence, and performed resistance, navigating the chasm between instinctual charisma that fuels the app and the longer-form uh, longer form seriousness, interesting editing, and vision that might make for a stable, sustainable career in entertainment has been playing out across reality television, pop and music, film, books, and other social media platforms, even TikTok itself. What's become clear is that the skill set that led to Big Tent triumph on the app in 2019 and 2020 is, by and large, seized to the medium. Given more room to breathe in other formats, most of TikTok's superstars are still figuring out how to create beyond the phone. Throughout many of these projects, what you sense is the offspring number of crunchers. Hmm. Throughout many of these projects, what you sense is the off-screen number crunchers hoping to hang potential franchises on the heads and necks of these young people who are less fully formed creative thinkers than fan aggregation performer platforms in desperate need of content. Hmm. Okay. Noah Beck tries things which appears on Awesomeness TV's YouTube channel, is the Ne Plus Ultra of this phenomenon. An entire series, two seasons deep, wholly devoted to figuring out what to do with this uncooked meal of a man. Beck 20 is a deeply affable former soccer player who, of all the current crop of TikTok crossover stars, appears the most baffled about how to amplify it. Noah Beck tries things as a slapdash trifle of consequence-free content production. It simply winds Beck up, places him in unlikely scenarios, cooking a steak, dancing the tango, recording a diss track, and watches him gulp for air. In one episode, while someone shows him how to do a handstand on a hoverboard, his awe is genuine. Not the practiced gosh of someone used to being filmed for reactions, but more like the -the off-the-cuff derp of someone who understands he has landed somewhere near the deep end and has no idea how to swim. On his show, he's mostly hapless, apart from the occasional athletic task, but what's emerging as his calling card is almost uh, but what's emerging as his calling card is his almost raging commitment to good naturedness. The only times Beck's brow ever genuinely mm, excuse me. Nope. Ah, the whole read of that off. It's fine. The only time Beck's brow ever genuinely froze are in scenes in the D'Amelio's Hulu show when Dixie, his girlfriend, she refers to him as a golden retriever, a familiar TikTok good boy archetype, can't quite muster the optics of a reciprocative 
relationship. In these moments, he looks frazzled, as if an Apple IIc is being updated with this year's operating system. Uh, struggle. 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 Struggle reference. I get it. Don't like it. Beck is genial and gentle. In short bursts on the app, he's palliative, but he never seems to be truly hungry. In stark contrast to that approach stands Addison Ray, or rather, revs Addison Ray. Of this generation of TikTok stars, she is the most intentional, the most iron-willed, the most determined. Off-camera, she has been loosely adopted into the Kourtney Kardashian orbit. Her parents have been game TikTokers. The D'Amelios play along too, but with uh, much less so. Even with Ray, 21, who has focused more intently on her social media presentation, she's now comically late. Uh, she's now often comically late to trends on the app. Interesting. She always appeared to have her eyes somewhere beyond the phone. Unsurprisingly, Ray's tur- uh, star turn in He's All That, the updating of the 1999 teen rom-com She's All That, itself an update of Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, is the most vivid post-TikTok performance of the year. He's all that. Ray. Okay. Investigation continues. That's because Ray understands uh, viral stardom, not just as a job, but as an archetype. Like the D'Amelio show, He's All That is a meta-commentary about the falsity of viral fame, albeit fictionalized. Ray plays pageant, pronounced more or less pageant, as a social media influencer falsifying her bona fides. After a fall from grace, she sets about remaking a surly outcast classmate who wears a Gigi Allen t-shirt as her new hottie. Hijinks ensue, followed by love. Beauty and popularity are inventions, and have been... <laughs> beauty and popularity are inventions. Correct. Checkbox. And have been long before TikTok came along. Okay. He's all that plays those constructions for chuckles and awes. As the end of the film sadly mimics the turn away from polishing accessibility towards Emma Chamberlain type of relatability, Paget returns to social media by positing more naturalistic photos taken by her new paramour. She's found herself an Instagram boyfriend after all. He's all that still valorizes and reinforces big algorithm, even converting the punk skeptic. But the... Hmm. But the sum of the young men who tra- thrived through the app in 2020 decided to pivot in the opposite direction. Refuse Nick. Most notably, this has been the direction taken by two stars trying to transition in music careers. Chase Hudson, 19, who records as Lil Huddy, and Jaden Hosler, 20, who records as JXDN. Unlike Ray, who this year released a peppy club... A peppy club pop single, Obsessed, a perfectly textualist workout anthem, Hudson and Hostler, 9 million followers, swerved hard into dissonant territory, embracing pop punk and in places the grittier textures that emerged from SoundCloud in the late 2010s. The heavily tattooed, were hot, <laughs> well, like hot couture, mall goth clothing, and paint their fingernails. Their pushback against TikTok centrism is highly aestheticized as opposed to, say, Bryce Hall, he of the COVID area partying, drug arrest, and boxing match, whose post-TikTok direction seems to be inspired by Jake Paul. For creators determined to make it clear they are not bound by TikTok's cutesy videos and algorithm, it is a purposeful choice. Hosler's debut album, Tell Me About Tomorrow, traverses anxiety and addiction. He has a reedy voice, and when he's singing, self-lacerating lines like, I don't like taking pills, but I took them anyway, he still sounds like an accessible teddy bear, albeit one whose stuffing is coming undone. Hmm. 
Interesting identity. By contrast, Hudson, there's only like 100 identities in the world, right? <laughs> By contrast, Hudson comes off as if he's spoiling for a bar fight on a de- debut album. Teenage Heartbreak. He's a sneerer. I'm not sorry that I crashed your party. In Downfalls High, the surprisingly puckish long-form music video that accompanies Machine Gun Kelly's latest album, Tickets to My Downfall, Hudson plays Phoenix, a ghoulish loner with punk charisma. Basically the kind of guy that Paget tries to clean up in. He's all that. When his girlfriend, who's popular and rich and slumming it, asks him who he wants to be when he grows up, he replies sullenly, but not terribly... I'm going to back up. When his girlfriend, who's popular and rich and slumming it, asks him what he wants to be when he grows up, he replies sullenly, but not terribly convincingly, dead. It all feels like one long, elaborate Halloween performance. Hudson is also one of several TikTokers featured in the long-simmering reality show, Hype House, which will have its premiere on Netflix next month. Hudson and Hostler's albums kill two urges with one groan. The need for, uh, 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 gonna watch that one. Hype House, Hype House, Hype House, Hype House, Hype House, Hype Hype House, Hype, writing that down, Hype House. Hudson and Hostler's albums kill two urges with one groan. The need for these TikTokers to find a viable path forward in the music in uh, the music industry's need to amplify and reinforce the still emergent <clears throat> revival of pop of pop punk. Yeah, I mean we can let that happen. The music of white rebellion with most most readily available to the new rivals with a little history or experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think it's a little reductive. Given the apparent craving for safe spaces, it's notable how on both the D'Amelio show and in He's All That, non-white characters are deployed as foils who are far more knowing and worldly than the white protagonist. Deliberately or not, they serve as reminders that the world beyond the app is far more diverse and complex. Noah Beck tries things, undertakes a version of this all as well, with clear collaborators, striking given that one of the most frequent critiques of Beck during his rise has been queerbaiting. That said, the first, the show's first episode where Beck learned how to apply makeup from James Charles appears to have disappeared from the internet. It's tough to know how purposeful these indictments about privilege are. They generally serve the narratives of the shows while reifying their stars, who are presented as being open to personal growth. The D'Amelio show, however, often comes as quietly ruthless towards the stars, whether in its array of oh, piques my interest, whether in its array of more experienced secondary characters, it's lingering on the excruciating challenges of growing up in public on the internet, or even in the fish out of water talking head shots juxtaposing the relentlessly normal family members against their relentlessly grand Southern California mansion. Ultimately, the D'Amelio show is about the toxicity of viral fame and also about child labor. Charlie is 17 now, and was about 15 and 16 when the show was taping. Dixie is 20. It is presented with the moral, as a moral victory near the end of the season, when after a period of deep uh, decompression by Charlie, it is determined that she will work only three days a week from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. On TikTok, though, life itself is labor. You feel that burden perhaps most acutely in how Dixie navigates the fame that she has arrived at in the feet of the wake of Charlie's breakthrough. Dixie is older, a little more cynical, and a lot less comfortable. For her next step, she chooses music. And the, and the show captures with discomforting... Mm-hmm. 
For her next step, she chooses music, and the show captures with discomforting intimacy just how challenging the decision is artistically and emotionally. Her voice is rough, her confidence is low, and she is besieged by uh, online naysayers. The persistent Greek chorus of negative online comments represented in the show is represented in the show in on-screen pop-up graphics is both effective and pervasive. Oh, and perverse. But I would also say it's probably pervasive as well. Her worldview, and I'll, I'll report back on that. Her worldview is encapsulated in the opening lines of her first single, Be Happy. Sometimes I don't want to be happy. Don't hold it against me. If I'm down, just leave me there. Let me be sad. <sighs> I fucking love that. Perhaps this heartbreaking transparency will be the ultimate legacy of this era of TikTok crossover. If there is in if hmm, it's there in Charlie's book, essentially Charlie, the ultimate guide to keeping it real. So I'm gonna read, which came out in late 2020, which juxtaposes first. I'm gonna watch the show, which juxtap- and then I watch a bunch of the TikToks. Then I'll read the book, which juxtaposes workbook esque pages about friendship and style with confessions about anxiety and therapy. An even more involved discussion about this fundamental viral stardom tension is in backstory in my life so far. The memoir of the TikTok superstar Avani Gregg, 19, a close friend of, friend of Charlie's with 38 million followers. Gregg's book is striking for its matter-of-fact conversations about self-doubt and mental health. Charlie's anxiety is a recurring topic on the D'Amelio show, which can often feel like crisis footage. Charlie having a panic attack in the car while she spies paparazzi paparazzi waiting for her or dixie breaking down after being bullied online but charlie's most revealing content may be in well may be in the form of her secondary tiktok account user 4350448610 which began in april during a trip to las vegas for of all things a jake paul boxing match it has a mere 15 million followers and charlie treats it as far more casually the videos are in general looser than on her main account with a broader range of emotions, from exuberance to exasperation. The dancing is a little smoother, a little less performed. Sometimes the gap between the two accounts is as vast as the one between burden and freedom, and sometimes it's just enough for her to zestily lean into lip-syncing a curse word that might not fly on her main account. She might owe the most commodified version of herself to TikTok, but here she's trying on different selves. In nearly every video, her smile is broad and relaxed. She looks like someone fully at home. And how many of us on Twitter, how many of us on the site, how many of us anywhere haven't tried on multiple identities and personalities and names and identities? All that. And there you go. That's today's show. And I feel very proud of it. I feel very proud of this show. We went some different directions. We took some risks. We went on some limbs. We said some things we needed to say. And we promoted our new show, which uh, started last week. You can go look it up, Reality Issues. It's on, um, should be two episodes maybe by the time you look this up. Uh, episode zero and episode one. Episode one, we're going to cover some things tra- tangential to today, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to take it in a... F- Fun, different direction, I think, every time we do the podcast. It's going to be like basically what's right on the top of our head. We're about to explode about. We're going to save it up all week, and then we're going to talk about it. And then um, this podcast will maintain many further topics other than 
the topic of reality TV. However, if you find this topic as fascinating as I do, Reality Issues will be a podcast essentially very much like today, but uh, more funny and interesting and less um, me just kind of talking at you, you know? And I'll have Kathy on this show eventually too. I would really like that because uh, she's extremely funny. And um, and this show could use something funny, right? Makes me think about those guilty pleasures. Makes me think about how we can't necessarily enjoy a show if it's entirely depressing all the time, even though we could. But wouldn't others make us feel bad about it if we just consume depressing content? We can't actually have the confidence. Let's go into the world with that confidence. Let's do that. The last thing I'm going to say to you before I plug in is this. Go into the world with confidence to like whatever you like and enjoy whatever you want to enjoy. And anything that piques your interest, anything, never feel like um, when you're watching TV, especially never feel like you're a voyeur or you're like someone on the outside that's literally everyone. Everyone's doing that. You don't need permission to watch a fucking television show. Don't feel like that. Don't feel like you need permission from your friend or someone you know to watch a TV show. There's no reason for that. It might feel like you need that, but you don't. You just need to figure out what you want. And now... Let's go a little, a little bit of this. Watched the Kanye documentary lately. Just a few times, I guess, collectively, if you put it all together. And I just... Um, new perspective. I feel like his his... That documentary is a codex to understanding everything about him and the way that he sees the world. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you again. This has been episode 19 of the podcast for all time. I'm Don Johnson, Brian. And, uh, you know, let's get to know each other better. Until then. I'm not sure anymore, more. Who is knocking at my door, door? All the faces that I know, jam at them so sunny and I don't wanna say goodbye to you. So I'll just say goodnight to you. My people, no goodbyes to you. Oh, I'm just Right now, I can see it so vivid Like it was just yesterday, like I could relive it Me and my grandparents on a field trip And I'm the little kid trying to test the exhibits But 
It'll fade before I get to get a hold of that Man, I wish I could stop time like a photograph Every joke that they told, I know to laugh Man, man, I wouldn't let a moment pass What do it mean when you dream that you fallin'? What do it mean when you dream that you ballin'? What do it mean when you never dream at all Then or you don't really know cause you can't recall them It's sort of fly you get a chance to say hi to People you never get a chance to say bye to Maybe you could pull them up out of your dreams Into real life, real life If you try to So close, so close but so far, but so far And so far, and so far no, cigar. no cigar We can't dwell on the past All we got is today So I'ma live like it's no tomorrow No goodbye, goodbye To you So I'll just say goodnight To you My people No goodbyes I'm just gonna say goodnight uh, To you If I part my art will live through you Dream beautiful and unusual Wake up like every day new to you Stay true to you A hood musical My art will live through you Dream beautiful and unusual Wake up like every day new to you Stay true to you I don't A say So I'll just say goodnight to you, my people, no goodbyes to you, I'm just gonna say goodnight, I'm not sure anymore and more, who is knocking at my door, door, all the faces that I know, just make them so sunny and true. I'm not sure anymore and more Who is knocking at my door, door All the faces that I know Just make them so sunny and true I'm not sure anymore and more Who is knocking at my door, door All the faces that I know Just make them so sunny and true I'm not sure anymore and more Who is knocking at my door, door All the faces that I know Y'all make them so sunny and true Yeah And you say Shy City Shy City Shy City I'm coming home again Do you think about me now and then? Yeah Do you think about me now and then? Cause I'm coming home three years old and what I love most she had so much soul she said excuse me little homie I know you don't know me but my name is Wendy and I like to blow trees and from that point I never blow her off niggas come from out of town I like to show her off they like to act tough she like to tone them off and make them straighten up their hat cause she know they soft and when I grew up she showed me how to go downtown and at night time my face lit up so astounding I told her and my heart is where she always be she never messed with entertainment Cause they always leave She said it felt like they walked and drove on me Knew I was gang affiliated Got on TV and told on me I guess that's why last winter she got so cold on me She said, yeah, keep making that Keep making that platinum and gold for me Do you think about me now and then? Do you think about me now and then? Cause I'm Start again. But if you really care for her, 
Then you wouldn't have never hit the airport to follow your dreams. Sometimes I still talk to her, but when I talk to her, it always seems like she's talking about me. She said you left your kids, and they just like you. They wanna rap and make soul beats just like you, but they just not you. And I just got through talking about what niggas trying to do, just not new. Now everybody got the game figured out all wrong. I guess you never know what you got till it's gone. I guess that's why I'm here and I can't come back home. And guess when I heard that? When I was back home, every interview I'm representing you, making you proud. Reach for the stars, so if you fall, you land on a cloud. Jump in the crowd, talking lighters, wave them around. If you don't know I'm by now, I'm talking about shot Town. Do you think about me now and then? Do you think about me now and then? Cause I'm coming. Start again. Who was hip-hop brother? Who was no ID friend? No ID my mentor and I let the story begin It's the hard knock life tour Sell out picture us in the mall Copping iceberg and yell out Jigger Yeah that's a weird yell out Yell out You know the name do I gotta spell out Or tell about J-A-Y And yay so shy That he won't even step to his idol to say hi Standing there like a mime And let the chance pass by Back of my mind He could change your life With all these beats I did At least let him hear At least you could brag to your friends Back at the gig But he got me out my mama crib Then he helped me get my mama a crib Big brother was Big's brother Used to be Dame and Big's brother Who was hip-hop brother Who was no ID friend No ID my mentor Now let the story begin Begin Let the story begin If you feel the way I feel, why don't you wave your hands? Fresh off the plane, I'm off the baseline. Nothing handed out, I'm about to take mine. Around the same time of that blueprint one. And these beats in my pocket was that blueprint form. I play my little songs in that old back room. Hear Bobby's head and say, damn, oh, that's you. But by the black album, I was blacking out. Party at SOBs and we had packed the crowd. Big brother got a show up in Madison Square. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we gon' be there. But not only did I not get a chance to spit it, Colleen told me I could buy two tickets. 
I guess big brother was thinking a little different And kept little brother at bay at a distance But everything that I felt was more bogus Only made me more focused Only wrote more potent Only thing I wanna know is why I get looked over I guess I understand when I get more older Big brother saw me at the bottom of the totem Now I'm on the top and everybody on the scrotum My big brother was Big's brother Used to be Dame and Big's brother Who was hip-hop brother Who was no ID friend No ID my mentor Now let the story begin Begin let the story begin. If you feel the way I feel, why won't you wave your hands? Have you ever walked in the shadow of a giant? Not only a client, the presidito. Ola Ovito. The game getting foul, so here's the free throw. I was always on the other side of the peephole. Then I dropped Jesus Walks, now I'm on the steeple. And we know New Jack City gotta keep my brother But to be number one, I'ma beat my brother On that Diamonds remix, I swore I spazzed Then my big brother came through and kicked my ass Sibling rivalry, only I could see It was the pride in me that was driving me At the Grammys, I said I inspired me But my big brother who always tried to be When I kicked the flow, it was like pick and roll Cause even if he gave me the rock, it's give me go Guess Beanie Style was more of a slam dunk And my shit was more like a finger roll But I had them singles though And them hoes at the show going mingle, yo Hey, y'all know I told Jay I did a song with Coldplay Next thing I know he got a song with Coldplay Back in my mind I'm like, damn, no way Translate Espanol, no way Jose Then I went and told Jay Brown Shoulda known that was gonna come back around Shoulda taught you like a man, shoulda told you first But I told somebody else and that's what made shit worse My big brother was Big's brother So here's a few words from your kid brother If you admire somebody you should go ahead and tell them People never get the flowers while they can still smell them I idol in my eyes, God of the game, heart of the city Rockefeller chain, never be the same, never be another Number one young hope, also my big brother My big brother was Big's brother Used to be Dame and Big's brother Who was hip-hop brother, who was no ID friend No ID my mentor and that's where the story ends Don't kill this shit